Welcome back to the Do Your Job movements. See, uh, Brian Tyler Cohen had a great headline, something about Trump being dealt another blow. Trump dealt another loss in New York court. Just. You're not going to believe this, but the former president who staked his entire reputation on winning has managed to continue his losing streak. Trump <laughs> then attempted for a fourth time to throw out the E. Jean Carroll defamation case that's headed to trial in January, uh -huh. arguing this time that he has absolute presidential immunity. Judge Kaplan swatted down Trump's argument, noting that this argument is no different from his previous arguments, all of which the court had rejected, and ultimately called the appeal frivolous. This January trial will come in the aftermath of Trump's first trial, where E. Jean Carroll was awarded $5 million after Trump was found liable of abuse and defamation. The show is going down, show. Trial is that this one involves defamatory comments about Carol that Trump made while he was president. Trump had previously argued that he was protected from litigation for those comments under this baffling assertion that everything he did while in office was within the scope of his Trump duties gets as another president, big no from New York. attacking his own abuse victim. Under Merrick Garland, the DOJ eventually reversed that decision because clearly defaming E. Jean Carroll was not within the scope of Donald Trump's presidential duties. Yeah. And the fact that this was even ever a question goes to show what a disaster Bill Barr's Department of Justice was. In fact, when Trump heard the news about the DOJ that they would be withdrawing from his case, which effectively signaled that he would lose millions more dollars, he lashed out on Truth Social, writing, the DOJ will not defend me in the E. Jean Carroll civil case, which is all part of the political witch hunt, lawyered up by a political operative who I just beat in another case, financed by a big political funder, and judged by a Clinton appointee who truly hates Trump. The statements that I made about Carroll are all true. I have no idea who she is, what she looks like, or anything about her. The net result of this horrible injustice, where a completely unknown to me woman made up a ridiculous story, wrote it in a book to increase publicity and sales. I correctly disputed the story and got sued for defamation, whereupon a Hostile judge and jury shockingly awarded a woman who I don't know, have never known, and don't want to know $5 million. We are strongly appealing this travesty of justice. And so because the DOJ won't be defending Trump in this upcoming defamation trial, it'll be up to Trump and his team to defend him, which is a tall order considering, as I mentioned earlier, he was already found liable once for defamation, and the comments at issue in this second trial are virtually identical. And of course, the case was also recently amended to include comments that Trump made during a CNN town hall, which will not only bolster Carroll's already airtight case against him, but will almost ensure that the damages she's awarded will be even higher.
had this great chemistry. We're walking into a crowded department, sir. We had this great chemistry, and a few minutes later, we end up in a, a room, a dressing room, up in Cliff Goodman, right near the cash register. And then she found out there were locks on the door. So she said, I found one that was open. She found one. She learned this at trial. She found one that was open. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings them up, and within minutes, you're playing hanky-panky in a dressing room, okay? I don't know if you, she was married then or not. John Johnson, I feel sorry for you, John Johnson. Mr. President, can I... And of course, after this aired, Carol Steen amended their court filing, saying, quote, this conduct supports a very substantial punitive damages award in Carol's favor, both to punish Trump, to deter him from engaging in future defamation, and to deter others from doing the same. And that's the part that Trump doesn't seem to grasp. The whole point of punitive damages that Trump was forced to pay in the initial defamation case was to punish him and deter him from future defamation. And yet, what did Trump do within 24 hours of getting hit with the verdict? He engaged in more defamation. And what did he do again on True Social? More defamation still. Which is why E. Jean Carroll is now basically saying, clearly Donald Trump has learned nothing from those inadequate punitive damages imposed in the first trial, so clearly we have to increase that amount. And while we don't know yet what number shall be awarded in the end, the goal is obviously to reach a point where the punishment is felt enough to actually deter Trump from defaming anyone in the future. And so while we don't know how high that number has to go up to finally make Trump notice, it certainly is going to be pretty high. And by the way, that is literally how the system works. As violations accumulate, the punishments become more severe. If you go to court with no priors, for example, you might get off with a slap on the wrist. But if you go to court with a whole rap sheet, like Donald Trump is doing, including those 91 other charges, that's probably taken into account, and the consequences are generally worse. Donald Trump is proving to the court, in real time, that he is not willing to take the law seriously, that he doesn't think it applies to him. And so the onus will be on the court to determine a punishment that reaches a level that might actually make the guy pay attention. Their job is to keep slapping him with punishments until he finally recognizes that he is not above the law. And that's a point I discussed with former federal prosecutor Glenn Kirchner as part of our YouTube-only legal series, The Legal Breakdown. But I really think this one is just going to be about the damages, how much Donald Trump should be made to pay. I think E. Jean Carroll has up the ask $10 million, if I'm not mistaken, and I could easily see the jury doubling the $5 million verdict they awarded E. Jean Carroll in the last trial. Why? Because after the jury handed down its verdict in favor of E. Jean Carroll, Donald Trump ran out to the cameras and did it all over again, defamed her all over again. Nobody will ever accuse Donald Trump of learning from his mistakes. Yeah, well, someone, someone should let Susan Collins know. Uh, Glenn, given the fact that Trump did already lose that first defamation case, is there any plausible deniability he has here? Is there any defense that he has here that could uh, result in, the, in this case being any different for him? Zero. The only thing he can do is play for a hung jury, or try to pick off a juror or two, hang the jury, and then force it to a retrial. But he has no defense on the facts or the law. And it's not just the money. It's also the fact that Trump is making a mockery of the legal system by so quickly and publicly discarding these verdicts. E. Jean Carroll's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, said it makes a mockery of the jury verdict and our justice system if he can just keep on repeating the same defamatory statements over and over again. And of course, it isn't just this case where Trump has displayed his disdain for that legal system. The fact that he's contending with four indictments and 91 charges goes to show that that same legal system is now operating to finally hold him to account for those very crimes. Which, by the way, is a pretty clear testament as to how the leader of the self-proclaimed Law and Order Party actually feels about Law and Order.
So at this point, it's almost certain that we'll see more attempts by Trump to delay or even throw out this trial, but just as certain is that his efforts to avoid accountability will fail. And just like in Manhattan, just like in Florida, just like in Washington, D.C., just like in Fulton County, Georgia, Trump will eventually be forced to show up in court and be held accountable for his own actions. He was perfectly content to do the crime while he was soaking up the applause and the fundraising dollars and the sycophantic adulation. Now comes the part where he pays for it, pun fully intended. Before you go, I need some help. Please subscribe to the channel and do your part to help grow the progressive media ecosystem. I don't do... Right, that's awesome. Nah. <clears throat> Ice Cube finally exposes the threats from evil Hollywood industry gatekeepers. 30 seconds ago. Let's see what Ice Cube has to say. Shit ain't gonna work. We ain't gonna survive this. Ice Cube came out the other day with a surprise live video where he exposed the truth. No views. Drama bay. Really going deep into this. The system is uh, it's, it's just designed totally. Some of you may not have realized, and a lot of you listening to me right here, right now. Ice Cube finally exposes the threats from Hollywood. Get ready to shatter the illusion and plunge into a chilling revelation as one of Hollywood's most iconic figures. Ice Cube once again dares to peel back the glitzy facade and expose the hidden threats lurking beneath the surface. In a riveting expose that has sent shockwaves through Tinseltown Ice Cube, renowned for his fearless attitude both on and off the screen. I'm talking about the club of gatekeepers that we all got to deal with. You know who they are. Pulls back the curtain to reveal a side of Hollywood that many have suspected but few have dared to confront. As the spotlight shifts from red carpets to darker corners, join us on a journey where the cold truth meets scorching revelations as Ice Cube finally takes a stand to uncover the threats that have remained concealed for far too long. The famous rapper Ice Cube caused quite a commotion in the entertainment world. He revealed some shocking information that had everyone concerned for his safety. What was it all about, you wonder? Well, he shared some surprising secrets about important people in the business. Ice Cube boldly stated that the NBA, National Basketball Association, was involved in causing serious harm. But that's not all. He didn't stop there. He is also coming up and revealing some hidden facts related to the prison industry and Hollywood. He connected the dots and explained how music companies might be sending people to prisons just to make money. To make things what? even more interesting, Ice Cube sat down with Bill Mayer on his well-known Club Random podcast. During this conversation, he shared more details. He talked about how Hollywood and the music industry are a threat to society and how it's linked to certain problems. The episode covered various topics like fame, parenting, and a connection between the prison industry and music. Okay, let's take, let's take rap music. Let's take same people who own the labels on the prisons. It, it seems really kind of suspicious, if you want to say that word, 
Prison stay full. In this podcast, Mayer started discussing with rapper Ice Cube how conversations nowadays are becoming more woke. He expressed his concern that this trend resembles the behavior in the movie Mean Girls, where people are always trying to find faults in others. Ice Cube had his say too. He revealed that he believes these small arguments are intentionally thrown at us by powerful people to keep us distracted and not focused on the real problems that are causing division in our society. It's just done to keep us bickering and chasing these words. So they're not getting to the root of the issues, which are most of the time very common if we go down to the root of it, Ice Cube said. He further explained that because he had personal experiences in the Hollywood industry, he could see things that others couldn't. The secret plans happening behind the scenes. He thought it all came down to who had power and control. The rapper talked about the complicated web of connections, dropping small hints about important people who were unnamed but were supposedly the ones pulling the strings for both music companies and private prisons. Like, follow the money, he begins. I don't know their names, but if you go high enough, you begin to see this is an industry. Let's take rap music, he continues. The same people who own the labels own the prison. It seems really kind of suspicious, if you want to say that word, that the records that come out are really geared to push people toward their prison industry. When I say work with us, is to stop working against us. Stop doing that bullshit. He wanted Maher and the people watching to look at where the money was going. He thought that if they followed the money, they would find something shocking. Ice Cube, sounding both worried and interested, talked about the interesting parts of these connections. He pointed out how Hollywood, especially the music industry, seemed to be linked to the prison system which got people wondering and wanting yourself, to know more. Lady. Ice Cube hinted that the songs put out by big record labels were carefully designed to shape how people think, subtly pushing them toward a path that helped the prison industry. He knew that fully understanding everything required a deeper investigation, but he was very sure that this was just one example of how powerful and wealthy people use differences in society to reach their dark goals. Maher looked surprised by these unexpected revelations and asked Ice Cube to explain more about this confusing idea. The rapper, speaking with strong belief, said that he was completely serious about what he was saying. He thought that the same people who made a lot of money from the music industry also had a big interest in the prison system. While critics, of course, might express skepticism, Ice Cube's assertions might prove challenging to accept at face value. It's worth noting that he was once a member of the infamous and contentious gangsta rap ensemble N.W.A., recognized for their rebellious and provocative tracks such as F asterisk 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 the police, which <laughs> dared to question authority and societal norms. However, it's intriguing to brace oneself, as Ice Cube had more revelations to share concerning the concealed underbelly of the music industry. According to Ice Cube, the situation is not as simple as directly imposing specific lyrics onto artists. Instead, he suggests that record companies discreetly act as guiding rails, influencing which songs gain exposure on the airwaves, and which ones are deliberately suppressed. Ice Cube exposed the firm grasp record labels maintain over creative autonomy, contending that they wield substantial control over albums. Ice Cube has been making various public appearances lately to promote his Big Three Basketball League. One of his recent interviews was with Bill Mayer. When I hear my homie say it, it don't feel like them. When I hear a white person say it, 
feel like that knife stabbing me, even if they don't mean it. Additionally, in another conversation on The Breakfast Club, Cube also expressed his belief in the existence of the Illuminati. I don't know one, none of them, none of them tell me, hey, I'm Illuminati, Ice Cube said. I don't participate in none of that, so I don't know about it. Seem like it's there, but who knows. Imagine a mysterious and complex game like controlling puppets. In this game, powerful people behind the scenes in the music industry pull the strings, deciding what kind of music we hear. But what's going on behind all this? Ice Cube has made a shocking revelation that exposes something unsettling. He calls it social engineering. He says that big players in the music business deliberately shape the content, themes, and messages of songs to support a system where many people end up in prison, making a lot of money for some. This revelation has surprised and worried listeners who heard it on a podcast. Think of a world where music bosses not only make songs to sell, but also shape how we think and behave. If Ice Cube is right, it's like entering a dark story where the line between making art and controlling people blurs into a confusing maze of lies. These claims bring up important questions about who has power in the music world and how it might affect society. Could it be that we're unknowingly being manipulated on a large scale? Do catchy songs and carefully written lyrics guide us along a planned path? If Ice Cube's suspicions are true, there's a huge conspiracy happening. It goes beyond just entertainment and affects how we all think. These surprising revelations show the music industry might be involved in secret plans, hidden strategies, and tricks to make money. But just like any big secret plan, it's wise to be cautious. Without solid proof and clear names, Ice Cube's ideas are more like guesses. Still, they make us think hard about the connections between music and the prison system. In a world where power and reasons are often hidden, secret plans may be real. No matter if Ice Cube is right or not, what he's saying reminds us to question things and watch out for possible tricks. As his surprising podcast talk continues to spread, we're not sure how the music industry will respond. Only time will tell if his ideas get taken seriously, leading to more investigation into how Hollywood and the music business work and how it affects everyone. While we wait, the discussions started by Ice Cube's podcast keep making us think and talk about these important issues. One user commented, he's brave to stay outside the gate and point out some of the characters keeping it. He's not the only one who knows what's going on, but he has the balls to stand alone and call the industry out. Well, isn't that wonderful? Trump face off with federal judge will backfire in his face. So lots to talk about. Two lots days going ago. on here in America, starting with Trump and Walt Nada pleading not guilty, and then you have the other guy, Carlos Villalobera, his arraignment is postponed. Imagine he still can't find a lawyer. I mean, that's what it's, that's what the postponement is about. He can't find a lawyer, and then of course you have Clarence Thomas. Think about this: Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, taking gifts from mega billionaires, some of whom have been before him on the Supreme Court for different cases. I mean, there's so much in there. You have this black girl from Utah who wants to kill Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Alvin Brandt, you know, Bonnie Willis, and everybody else on behalf of Donald. So, look, we have a lot to talk about, but the first thing that I actually really want to talk to this you about is, my is in a Don't 
take it on down This is my My man Cooper Gonna bring it on down Break it on down, break it on down, break it on down. Saying that the arguments in favor of broadcasting the trials do not give enough weight to the dangers that could pose to trial witnesses and jurors or the potential to undermine the integrity of the trial process. Now, Nick, I want to be honest with you. I've been yelling this from the rooftops literally since I heard since I heard that they wanted to televise that, because I'm with you. I think it is, while I'm all for transparency, I think it is a horrible, horrible idea. If you would, describe for my listeners how this would manifest in a trial, and why you ultimately think, as do I, that it's a bad idea. Well, a number of reasons. First of all, with respect to witnesses and jurors, um, having your face... Uh, exposed and broadcast worldwide uh, is going to leave you open to every wackadoodle who's out there that's in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, and you could very well have happen just like happened yesterday in Provo, uh, Idaho, or happened after the search warrant was executed on Mar-a-Lago, where some crazy showed up at the FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio, and tried to shoot an FBI agent. I mean, it is extremely important that these witnesses be protected, that their uh, images not be out there, that people not see who they are. Some of these people are even unknown people at this point. Some of them are FBI agents. There'll be a lot of boring testimony about um, surveillances and records. Uh, and these people should not be exposed to this um, sort of situation where people are going to make them targets. Um, and the other real big reason here is that one thing that Donald Trump excels at is reality TV. Uh, and what he would do is try and turn this whole proceeding into a reality TV show um, through his lawyers by telling him to do certain things. I mean, since he's really the chief lawyer in the defense here, he's the guy who calls all the shots. So he's good to tell him what to do because it's good for the TV cameras, good for his campaign. Uh, he can sit there and make a couple outbursts, make some gestures, uh, eye motions, hand motions. Uh, he's going to come right close to the line where a judge could hold him in contempt. And the problem, of course, is all of these judges really don't have experience dealing with a guy like this uh, who knows how to manipulate the system. Um, and the judge is even the one in New York who's been... Um, basically dragged through uh, the polls uh, by Donald Trump. It's done nothing despite all of the statements that Donald Trump has made about him. So they're very reluctant to put him in prison until in such time as he's convicted by a jury of his peers. So that's the problem here, is that one, witnesses and jurors would be in danger, and two, uh, this gives Donald Trump an opportunity to manipulate the system where he's actually pretty confident. I may not be confident in a lot of other areas, but when it comes to reality TV, he knows how to put on a good show, and he knows what is going to catch the viewer's attention.
Trump's lawyer cross-examined her for about a day and a half, and went on and on and reported what she said. But what they didn't report was that what this lawyer did was to basically make the usual rookie mistake, trying to keep a defendant or a party on cross-examination way too long. What he wound up doing was building up her credibility and asking her questions that would not have necessarily been proper or admissible on her direct testimony. He should have just taken her through a series of yes or no questions to support his summation. That is, did you report, you didn't report this to anybody at Philidor Goodman, correct? She'd have to say yes. You didn't call the police, correct? And she'd have to say yes. Could have done that all in 45 minutes, gotten her off the stand, and then used that in his summation and read from her testimony. Instead, he's up there beating away, asking her all kinds of questions that at the end of the day made her the most credible witness in the courtroom, and nobody called him on it. So that's the kind of reporting you need in these in these trials. You can't let rookies go in there and then come out and tell the public what happened. But you were a mortgage prosecutor, and you handled, to this day, very complex criminal cases. There's no doubt that CNN or MSNBC will call you and ask you to come in and to explain the information in a credible and in a legitimate way. Yes, except they're not going to have me sit in a trial. That's what they're not going to do. You can't really do this with credibility unless you actually are in the trial and are able to report it. That's what they don't have. None of the networks have this. It's like I say, they report football games in much more detail and precision than they do criminal trials. So I think that's where the media is really falling flat. They can also make better use by getting transcripts on a daily basis so that when they do report it, they can actually show what people said in the courtroom. And if you've got the right expert who had attended the courtroom to give the public some idea of how the person came across, how the jury reacted to the person, what the atmosphere was in the courtroom in terms of trial practice and how this thing was explained to the jury, that would go a long way to providing transcripts. Most people are going to fall asleep. You get to the charge to the jury. My God, even I used to doze off to that. That's just not going to grab the public. And of course, the problem is that TV networks have to have commercial breaks. You can't have people giving commentary during the course of a trial. There's no trial. It just can't be done that way. And what they really need to do is do a little introspection and decide how they can really inform the public about what goes on in each of these trials. The problem is, I'm going to use myself as somebody who is potentially expected to be a witness in one, if not two, of these matters. I don't want to be in the witness protection court. Even when I was at Otisville, it was offered to me to go to K Block, which is where they keep the witness protection inmates because of death threats. And I didn't want it. I wouldn't want it here either. I'm not walking away from my family. I'm not walking away from my friends. I'm not walking away from my
my life that I'm trying to rebuild? Bullshit. For what? And I'm only one person. Remember, there's going to be five different indictments against Trump. Two more definitively on January 6th and also Bonnie Willis, uh, Fulton County, Georgia case. There will be five. How many let's, let's just be stupid for a second and say each and every one of these five will only have three witnesses on behalf of the government. Now, we know there's much more. Of course, I'm being stupid and for a point. That's 15 people, witnesses, who are going to be splashed, as you correctly you know, stated, going to be splashed all over the media for people like this loony, Craig Robertson, out of Utah, who was making death threats to Joe Biden, who is also... You know, making threats to Alvin Bragg and to Connie Willis. I understand. Again, I want them to be safe. But I also want witnesses to be safe, too. So what are you going to do? Now start providing police protection to each and every, you know, one of the witnesses? And again, being stupid, I said three in each of these five indictments. That's a big many, many more. That's only, of course it's many more. So... How does something like this even work? And why would a witness in his right mind, seriously, why would a witness turn around and agree and fuck this bullshit on subpoenas and so on? You can subpoena anybody all you want. You don't have the right to put their lives in jeopardy. Yeah, I know, you subpoena. You can wipe my ass with that subpoena. If I believe that my life is in jeopardy, why in the world fuck you and your subpoena? I'm not putting my life uh, on the line when you have 24-7 police protection. How do we... This is what Donald wants to do. And successfully, he's doing it. He's creating all of this rigmarole. He's creating all of this fear and anxiety and angst in everybody's lives. And using stupid people like this Craig Robertson... The, the, the guy who unfortunately got killed, shot and killed by the FBI, he's using people like that. Look at what happened with the January 6th committee. I mean, the star witness there, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, one, she only testified because uh, Congressman Cheney was able to talk her into doing it. But even when she did it, um, they had to play clips from her deposition. Um, just because she was a pretty nervous witness, and afterwards, she had to go in hiding with security with her family for a, a period of time. And she's not going to want to come out of that now, go testify in this January 6th trial, and all of a sudden, have to be worried about security again. I mean, that's not fair for somebody like that. Um, and the benefit to the public in seeing this on camera, I must say, is, is just not that great in the balance against it, the kind of antics that Donald Trump is going to pull in trying to turn this into a reality TV show. So I'm curious then, if you could take a step back for a moment and discuss your view of the size and the scope of what is, you know, of what's occurring right now, that a former president, a former president of the United States is being charged with the most treacherous act in opposition to democracy, right? Rule of law and the peaceful transfer of power in our country's history. So if you would, 
discuss with my listeners what goes through your mind when you're thinking about things like this. This is totally unprecedented, for sure. Um, but, you know, these, these indictments are, are all serious. I mean, it's not just a January 6th. Uh, the case being brought by Alan Bragg really is kind of the first bookend to the January 6th. Uh, as the first paragraph in the statement of facts with that indictment says, uh, Donald Trump paid off this hush money and covered it up through false documentation, basically defrauding the voters from knowing this information prior to the time they voted in 2016. So in 2016, what does he do? basically hides from the voters material information that would have made a difference in how the election came out, particularly since it followed right after the Access Hollywood tape came out and all of the hubbub about that. And then, now with January 6th, uh, he's being charged with crimes for trying to stay in office, basically, again, defrauding the voters by lying to them about dead people voting, and state people voting, um, and felons voting, etc. So what you've got him doing, I mean, this is, these are simple cases. It's all about lying and trying to steal the voters' right to vote and stealing the vote. Uh, and that's what uh, certainly those two cases relate to. Um, and the other case with the classified documents, I, I think it just shows that um, I mean, we don't know why he took those documents or what he was planning to do with them. Certainly he was using it for retribution. He tried to use it against General Miley in that tape conversation that they're going to put into evidence. But Donald Trump doesn't do anything, as you know, without some kind of monetary motive behind it. So the question is, what was he really going to do with all those classified documents that he never bothered to read when he was president? Never mind, read, understand. So what was he really going to do with that stuff? And that's the big question. Yeah, you may remember when that first broke. Oh, that's all And I said, I think everybody's looking at this the wrong way. They all want to know what were the documents. Uh, and we knew that we're they all were being held hostage. I was more concerned about what was in the documents. And I keep saying, that's not what you really want to be interested in. The government right now needs to know what was the nefarious purpose that Donald had in taking those specific documents. It's not like he just grabbed a pile of papers, threw it into a box, and I'll figure it out later. He knew exactly what he was taking. The question becomes why, and more importantly, who else has seen them? Those were the arguments that I was making. And of course, you know, the hosts of the different shows would say, yeah, that's true. And I said, it has to be like a Where's Waldo game, right? You have to track where Donald went each and every day. And that's not difficult because you know, his movements are tracked by Secret Service, aircrafts, and so on. And then you need to figure out who did he see. We all know that there were boxes that were placed on Air Force One, right? You know, that big gigantic Trump sign that flies around in the air, the 757. We know that there were boxes on it. We know that there were other people that were there. Many of them have already testified. So the question is, we need to figure out exactly the nefarious purpose. And I believe a lot of it Many. had to do not just for money, but it was also Every for the United purpose. States hostage. That if you do this to me, 
I will release some of the most classified national security secrets that we have right now that will put the United States behind the eight ball. And he wouldn't give two shits about it. Yet, the guy wants to be president again. Well, let me say one example here that... Incriminating. Connection to the server timed out. Hmm. It has always intrigued me. He did take some classified documents out of his safe, personal safe in his office in all uh, One of those documents related to President Macron of France, uh, and another of those documents related to Roger Stone uh, and his pardon uh, of his sentence. Um, and the question is, what was he doing with that stuff? I mean, why did he single that out and put it in his safe? Was he planning to blackmail people with that stuff? Was he, what was he going to use it for? I, I just, I'm at a loss to really explain what that was all about. Um, well, why would he take those documents and why would he single them out and put them in his safe? If tuna is one of the healthiest and leanest protein you can eat, then why are we eating more of it? We'll tell you exactly why. Tuna on the supermarket shelves is basically smelly mush. And Natural Catch is here to give canned tuna a better name. Here at Natural Catch, we show what's in our can. <laughs> why would he take those documents and why would he single them out and put them in his safe? I think another part that just needs to be thought about, how did the government even know that he had a safe? How did the government know what was inside that safe? Remember, they had very specific documented information that they provided the magistrate in order to get that search warrant. The search warrant wasn't for anywhere at Exclamation point. Why do you think the Justice Department hasn't gotten the search warrant to search all his properties yet. He said those documents... Those documents... I'm absolutely sure he has 50, 100, 50, 100, Maybe several hundred more boxes of national defense secrets stashed. Why do you think 
the Justice Department hasn't gotten hasn't got a search warrant to search all these properties yet. Everywhere that Donald Trump has access to. It was for very specific areas, and I maintain, and again I'll say this is completely my opinion, I maintain that it's Jared and Ivanka. I mean, if you are the safe in your home, other than your children and your wife, who else knows? For every and any nefarious reason you can think of. about the safe. Not like he's opening it up for Walt Nada. It's not like he's opening it up for this guy Carlos de Oliveira, right? Or the guy that's bringing him in his food. Only they would know, not just about the existence of the safe, but also what's inside, what's the content of the safe, and what's the content of the documents. So, yeah, that's just my opinion. But I want to ask you this, being, again, a Watergate prosecutor. How does this differ in terms of scope, comparing it to Watergate? And the I'm tweeting him my um, questions. Michael Cohen, 212, that's the area code for New York. I said you were asking why I kept those documents for every and any nefarious reason you can imagine. In fact, that's probably why the Justice Department has not arrested him yet, because he is holding us all hostage with all of our defense secrets in his fucking bathroom and ballroom at Mar-a-Lardo. Those documents, I'm absolutely sure he still has 50, 100, maybe several hundred more boxes of national defense secrets stashed around all of his properties. Hey, Michael, why do you think the Justice Department 202-514-2000 hasn't gotten a search warrant to search all of his properties yet? Including Scotland and Ivana's grave site. LOL. Run for office with me, Michael Cohen. Let's crush him and make sure he goes behind bars, not ever take office again. Just propose Trump to prison. Old Diaper Don took so many national defense secrets because they were incriminating. Ah, he took all the evidence with him.
evidence, conclusive evidence, overwhelming and conclusive evidence that he is a traitor and should hang for his treachery against the United States and, the, and uh, its people. If they saw what's in those documents, he would hang. Department saw what was in those documents? Question mark. He would hang as a traitor. The most pernicious traitor imaginable. Benedict Donald. U.S. has ever seen. Hashtag Benedict Donald. Makes Hitler look like a nice guy. <laughs> he makes Hitler look like a nice guy. LOL. <laughs> So I said if old Diaper Donald had actually returned those documents, he would be hanged. As the most pernicious traitor the world has ever seen, he makes Hitler look like a nice guy. He makes Hitler look like a nice guy. And the crimes of Richard Nixon. <laughs> well, Richard Nixon was across the board for a lot of crimes. There's no question. Um, I always believed he knew about the break-in beforehand. There was no actual miscible evidence to that effect. But everything I saw in terms of how he micromanaged that campaign and how people played out to his ego. He took all the incriminating no evidence with him. What was going on. And it just didn't relate to the break-in and the subsequent cover-up. It also had to do with how they were misused. And would never give it back, even under penalty of death. <laughs> You'd have to rip it out of his cold, cold hands.
Even under penalty of dead. Nixon had enough smarts to have his underlings do a lot of the dirty work, so that the evidence against Nixon was basically on his Oval Office tapes, which, by the way, were put in because of the 1969 Tax Reform Act, which gets around um, giving gifts of papers to the government who was able to give gifts of tapes. So the irony here is uh, his own greed trying to keep this huge tax deduction, which had been legitimate for him and a lot of other presidents, he basically created this taping system, broke him down, just put him down because that was what, that's the evidence that put him away. Um, Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, has been very careful in terms of not using email, not writing too much. Um, but again, a lot of the things he does in the open, and there have been tapes, and there's the tape uh, that you uh, have with him when you're talking about the payment to... Um, Jeremy McDougall. Jeremy McDougall. Uh, there's the, the tape from, in, the, in the classified document case where he's describing all the classified documents to people. Uh, there's the tapes in Georgia um, where he's threatening um, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, tapes of him with the chief investigator, with the head of the um, House of Representatives in Georgia. So, I mean, there's a lot of tapes out there, plus some of the other people, like Rudy Giuliani, are all recorded making their basic uh, pitches to uh, the Georgia legislators and Pennsylvania legislators, all based on the same law. Posting on Facebook, Trista uh, Genova, Trista Genova. based on the same lies about fraud in the election. So it's a different... What's going on? Has to go after Comey um, and his deputy. Um, and and me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Senator Dick Durbin. Senator right. Dick Durbin called on the IG to open an investigation to add me to the list of whether it was Comey or, um, uh, who was it, Andrew Weissman, uh, I think, or it was somebody else, to add me to the list of people that they're, in, that they're looking into because it's awfully suspicious 
the actions of the IRS. That case never went anywhere. Not for me, not for Comey, not for anybody. And that's the problem, too. Donald seems to get away with all of this shit. We all know what he's doing. For God fuck's sake, I wrote a book about the whole thing, outlining it, revenge. I put into great detail, not just what's been reported, but statements from FBI agents, former and current, right, who turn around and talk about the things that Donald did that we all know about, but yet there's no prosecution, there's no investigations. All you get is somebody like Jim Jordan wanting to now investigate Joe Biden for the weaponization of the Justice Department against Donald. I mean, I'm, I'm so lost with what we are doing as a country. Oh, don't forget it. I mean, this special counsel now um, is overwhelmed. I mean, he's got a lot on his plate. I mean, former to try and investigate all the crimes here and prosecute all the crimes that Trump committed. Um, you'd really be up to your eyeballs for the next 10 years in doing so. So they've got to make decisions. And it seems to me that the cases that they've indicted so far are pretty much slam dunks. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. They should be able to get convictions in all three of those states. And the one in Georgia should be as well. So it doesn't make any difference how you get into the big house. Um, as long as you get them there. And I think that's the most important thing is deciding which of those are. Now, the big difference with Watergate, of course, is the climate was different. Once the Republicans realized uh, that Nixon was guilty as sin, uh, Barry Goldwater and a bunch of other uh, members of the Republican Senate uh, went up to Nixon, to the White House, and said, look, the, the jig is up. Uh, you've got to leave. You know, we can't defend you on this in the impeachment trial. Um, and Nixon had enough sense to resign. I, mean, I don't think Donald Trump in a million years is ever going to back down from any of this. That the only way he's not going to run for president is if he essentially loses the primaries, which I don't know, it's, it's kind of hard to say what's going to happen now, especially a fourth indictment coming up. I, some of these Republicans have got to just say to themselves, how can a guy like this um, you know, be the standard bearer to the party under indictment four times, uh, and how that's not going to impact the Senate races, the House races, the governor's races, probably even the dog catcher races. I mean, what, what candidate on the Republican Party is going to want to have to justify at every press conference? How can you be running on a ticket with Donald Trump, who's under indictment? So, but is it, I mean, look at how jaded we have all become. Oh my God, how could you run on the same ticket as a guy who's now been indicted four times? My question would be, how could you be on the same ticket as a guy who's indicted once, twice, or three times, right? Why is four or three or five the magic number? I mean, they all know who and exactly what he is, and yet they still defend him. Look at them coming from the... Marjorie Toilet Greens to the Lauren Hoberts and, and the Ted Cruz's and the Matt Gates's and, you know, the Josh Hawley's. And you could just go with a Lindsey Graham's. You could keep going down the entire list, right? I mean, it doesn't matter to Which kind of then brings me back to the very first question that we were talking about, right? Which is, I mean, these people that are watching Trump 
that is still attending the rallies, whether they're loaded to the gills or they're basically half empty, they do believe that this is all politically motivated prosecution, that this whole thing against Donald is unfair because Donald somehow has the ability to convince them that he is the victim. Donald's always the victim, right? So it goes back to it, it goes back to the first thing that we were talking about. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, if these people see with their own eyes and listen to the trial with their own ears, you know, basically how the sausage is made, that they will somehow be less inclined to swallow all of this Trump bullshit and maybe he doesn't make it to the primary? No, I don't see that affecting the hardcore supporters. It's not going to make any difference. Um, I think the fact out there of three, four indictments is going to have a major impact on independent voters who actually decide presidential elections now. Uh, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're politics, and the whole idea of your politics is trying to expand your base, expand your vote, he's not doing that. I mean, he's... Here we go. Um, this is... CNN, throw Trump under the bus. ...and opponents. We might not see it for some time until we get to the general election. And just a quick final question. The president has been very reluctant to comment publicly on any of this regarding the, the former CNN. president and what he's going through uh, from a legal standpoint. But we're about to hit a pretty seminal moment on Thursday or Friday. If he is booked at the Fulton County Jail talking about Donald Trump. Has his fingerprints taken? Has his mugshot taken? Does does the president need to revisit? I mean, we're talking about why people it's not sinking in with people on the Republican side. They're, they believe Trump over everybody else. Why not have the president of the United States make some kind of comment on all of this? Does do you think it makes sense for him politically to stay silent on this? Yeah, I do. At this point, Jim, at some point that will have to change. But right now. Uh, the president has got a job to do. The president's going to be running on his own record. The president's going to be talking about the jobs, you know, the 13 million or so jobs that he's brought to this country and how he's brought his allies together. He's going to talk about the chips bill. Let, you know, I think he's waiting to some extent to see how uh, Donald Trump's Republican opponents are going to treat this. And sooner or later, they're the ones that are going to have to uh, address this. They're the ones that are going to have to say, wait a minute. I'm running against a guy who's got a mugshot uh, or several mugshots who's been charged with some of the most serious crimes in both state and federal court. And people on the debate stage are going to be witnesses against that. I think the president's doing the right thing right now. But that will have to change if at some point down the road, the Republican Party doesn't stand up and speak out like they should be uh, on this important, important issue. All right, Senator Doug Jones, thanks very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. This Wednesday, Republican presidential candidates will face off at their first debate. Eight candidates are expected to be on the debate stage in Milwaukee, including a new addition. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson told CNN today he's met the RNC's polling and donor requirements to participate, but there will be one notable absence. Of course, we're talking about former President Donald Trump. He confirmed uh, just a short while ago that he won't be participating, he says, in the debates, uh, whatever that means. Uh, joining us now to discuss, and then senior political analyst Ron Brownstein and the director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics, Larry Sabato. He's also the editor 
of Sabato's Crystal Ball. Uh, Larry, let me start with you first. Uh, maybe I should say something that uh, perhaps they're not expecting over at Fox, and that is perhaps this will be a better debate uh, since Donald Trump's not going to be there. Well, there may be fewer introductions, uh, interruptions rather, but you know, Jim, this is not exactly must-see TV without Donald Trump on the stage. It's bound to reduce the audience. Uh, you'll get the basic Fox audience and the political junkies and so on. Um, but I just can't imagine it running anywhere close to the way it would if Trump were there. They'll still attack Trump. They'll probably attack one another. But probably the yeah. debate will be forgotten within we a few days or certainly a week or two. For a few hours if he shows up at the Fulton County Jail on Thursday, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and Ron, um, you know, he continues to hold this command. I mean, I guess this is the reason why he's not doing the debates, as he says in quotes. Um, he, ha he has this commanding. Look at this new CBS News poll showing him at 62 percent among likely Republican voters. Ron DeSantis is in second at 16 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy is at 7 percent. He's ahead yes. of a former vice president, a senator, or a former U.N. ambassador, former governor, and so on. I mean, that just also, I think, says something about this field. What, what is your sense of it right now? Trump is running almost as an incumbent, like an incumbent right now in that field. Yeah, as Larry knows, I mean, he, Trump has a lead in polls that we've seen very few primary candidates in either party why he must be just on, a, on a national basis to get into the high 50s, much less 60 in a, in a crowded field. You know, is a statement the of, of, party uh, breath, of his support in the Republican coalition and his success in the Republican coalition at convincing them to view the indictments the way he wants them the to see it as essentially uh, anyway. an attack on them. Uh, through him. Having said that, you know, like many other political I'm just back from Iowa, the state there, and there is passionate support for Trump there as well. But Jim, there was also a screen among many voters that I just kind of, you know, randomly talked to, it's not a poll, uh, at the fair, that there are voters who are exhausted with all of the controversy uh, around Trump, which is why I think it would be a really high-risk move for him to show up for his, uh, his mugshot right when the debate is going on. It, it's not like there's an, you know, that there's a coalescing around any single alternative by any means, but there is still a universe of voters who are not sure they want to sign up for five more years uh, of the Trump show as it's been unfolding. And Larry, to that point, Axios is reporting that uh, Republican donors are dissatisfied with their candidate options. Uh, they privately encouraged uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, Brian Kemp of Georgia, to join the presidential race. That's according to Axios. Uh, I mean, how likely is any of that uh, to occur? And uh, just to be devil's advocate here, wouldn't that put those two gentlemen in the same category as these other candidates, <laughs> these other non-Trump candidates who are getting four or five, seven percentage points, if that? Exactly right. Exactly right. All these puff pieces that are appearing uh, in Murdoch-controlled publications and TV stations, as well as a few others, uh, suggest somehow that a candidate who hasn't run at all can come into the race very late, having missed deadlines, filing deadlines for some of the primaries, and just because uh, he may have a good image or can raise tens of billions of dollars from private equity sources, suddenly we'll, we'll go and shoot right to the top. <laughs> Boy, for one thing, all those other candidates who've been slogging it out state to state won't be too happy with that. And I don't think Donald Trump will hold back in attacking them. He certainly will attack Kemp. 
And I think you'll find a lot of things he doesn't like about Glenn Youngkin, too. So this is so typical. Ghost candidates, I call them. We've had them before in quite a number of races in the past. And it just never happens. Maybe this will be the exception, but it will really be the first in modern times if it does. Now, Ron, you have this new piece in The Atlantic today where you write that Trump is beatable in Iowa. He's leading in the polls there, but even if he lost the state, uh, would that hurt his campaign at all? We don't always see the eventual nominee win in Iowa. Active trade for options allows for a quicker options trading experience. You can read charts, view quotes, and place orders simultaneously on the same device. To place an option to order, first access the options layout. You can see all the widgets on the same layout. Second, find a ticker symbol from your watch list. Select the option strategy and click the contract you are interested in. You can find more details and information on the quotes and contract chart simultaneously. Third, choose either of the two modes to place an options order. One, please order the eventual nominee win in Iowa uh, on the Republican side anymore. Absolutely. I mean, the good news for Trump's rivals is that Iowa does have a modern tradition now where the Republican caucus has gone against the front runner in each of the last three races in 08, 12, and 16 that were contested. But each time, as you know, they picked an alternative who was not able to win the nomination overall. In fact, none of those three Iowa winners, Mike Huckabee in 08, Rick Santorum in 12, and uh, Ted Cruz in, in 16, won more than a dozen states because the way they won Iowa was to maximize support among one group of voters, uh, evangelical Christians. And you can win Iowa that way. But if you paint yourself into that corner uh, and have trouble reaching out beyond that constituency, there aren't that many other states, uh, as each of them demonstrated, that you can win. And there are Iowa, you know, the Iowa political leadership that is dubious of Trump has by and large settled on DeSantis. He has a lot of endorsements from local elected officials. Uh, many of the conservative uh, power brokers and evangelical leaders are likely to end up in his corner. But I didn't really find a lot of interest uh, about him among voters that I talked to. He, it, it almost feels like he's making a category error. I mean, his his assumption was that Republicans would, would warm to an idea of Trumpism without Trump. So he's relentlessly portrayed himself as a fighter. I think the problem is that the voters who want a fighter in the Republican electorate, they like the fighter they have, Trump. Right. The voters who don't want Trump are the ones who are exhausted by all the fighting. And for too many of them at this point, DeSantis just seems like more of the same, bringing some of the same controversies and political vulnerabilities as Trump himself. And I wanted to get a quick take from both of you on what I heard yesterday from constitutional legal scholars, uh, Lawrence Tribe and retired conservative judge uh, Michael Ludig. Uh, they're making the case that convicted or not, uh, Trump is already disqualified from holding office yeah. under the 14th yeah. Amendment. Uh, Larry, I guess to you first, uh, I mean, does, what is the, the, the likelihood that we could see a, a scenario emerge where he is booted off of ballots in certain states because a secretary of state there might say, you know what? He is disqualified, and we see a big court fight ensue. Well, I'm in a deep state of pessimism, uh, Jim, but I have to tell you, I watched that segment, and I thought it was wonderful. I hope they're right. I don't know whether they're right or not. We'll leave that to the courts and other legal scholars. 
But it was wonderful to see a very conservative judge, Judge Ludig, as well as a very liberal professor, Professor Tribe, join together in the national interest in pointing out what should be obvious. You don't need a guilty verdict to send someone like Trump off the ballot, at least according to the 14th Amendment. That's my view. That was their view. They put it very well, and it was wonderful to see. And, guys, Ron Brownstein, I'm just hearing in the last couple of seconds that Chris Christie did sign the loyalty pledge. Am I hearing that correct? It sounds as though the former New Jersey governor has signed that loyalty pledge. You know, I'm just curious, Ron, what you think of that. I mean, they have to get on this debate stage, and I suppose they've got to comply with these requirements. But that means that Chris Christie is essentially saying, I'll support Trump if he's the nominee, although I have a feeling that he may revise and extend his remarks. I have a feeling he may revise and extend his remarks. Look, if you've got to do that to get on the stage, you're going to sign it. But does anybody believe that if Trump himself eventually signs something to get on to a later debate stage, and I do think he will have a different calculation when the debates get into the early states themselves, that he would fulfill that? Obviously, I haven't seen what Christie has said, but he's a lawyer, and I think he's going to find a way to square the circle and get on the stage, but also leave open his options not to support the nominee if it's Donald Trump. All right. We'll be looking for any loopholes in that loyalty pledge in the days to come, I suppose. All right. Larry and Ron, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate it. We'll be right back. Josh Campbell is nearby in Oak Glen, California. Pardon me, Josh, as well, for asking if there was any feeling on your end of this earthquake. I know, as Stephanie Ewan was saying a few moments ago, this is not something that gets people all that riled up in Southern California. But I can see, to the point of what's happening with Tropical Storm Hillary, it looks like you are starting to see the effects of that where you're standing right now. Give us the latest. Yeah, that's right, Jen. The rain picking up now, the wind picking up. We didn't feel that earthquake here. We were actually in motion. I got a text from my husband who said they very much felt it in Los Angeles. Where we are now, you can see here at the foot of the San Bernardino Mountains, this area here is one of those areas that are now under mandatory evacuation. And the sign here over my shoulder tells the whole story. This area prone now to mud and debris. And that is because this whole area was subjected to recent burns. That changing uh, the landscape here, which uh, is giving firefighters great concern. As our photojournalist Chris Haddock and I walk over here, you can see behind me some of those burn scars. This was all from previous wildfires. Uh, firefighters tell us that these burn scars are throughout the area, which makes, again, once the rain picks up and really starts turning into these flash floods, they soar down this area from the mountain uh, down below. Now, I spoke just a short time ago with the battalion chief who oversees this region here in San Bernardino. He talked to, talked to us about why this area is so concerning for them and why it's so important for residents here to listen to authorities. Have a listen. The biggest areas of concerns for us is some of our burn scar areas, the El Dorado and the Apple Fire that are burned a few years ago. And really, we've seen pretty significant mud flow and water flow in the, this last year, which is pretty good. If we ask you to evacuate, we don't take that lightly. We're asking you based on predictions and concerns, and we want you to get out sooner rather than later. The last thing we want you to do if we have significant rain is you try to leave last minute and then be overtaken by floodwaters. 
And because it's so unusual to have this kind of rain, certainly a tropical storm moving through this area, authorities tell us that makes their job that much harder when it comes to predicting which areas will be hit the worst. So that battalion chief telling us it's very much all hands on deck here. The firefighters in San Bernardino County, they're responsible, Jim, for over 20,000 square miles are on full alert. They've moved from preparedness to response mode, and they're just waiting to see how strong the storm is going to be as it moves in in earnest here, Jim. All right, Josh Campbell, please stay safe. Uh, thank you very much for that report. And, and we should note uh, that this uh, earthquake has been, uh, we've got new information on it, that uh, this was a magnitude 5.1 quake. Uh, we are hearing anecdotally from. If you feel distant from the Lord, it's probably because you haven't been reading Bible. But what if you hate reading or you struggle to understand Bible? Bible. This KJV Bible to 5.1 quake. Uh, we are hearing anecdotally from uh, some folks in uh, Los Angeles. Right, thanks, thanks so one person who said uh, that uh, their uh, their apartment did shake uh, just a bit during those earthquakes. We're going to stay on top of that. But let's stay on uh, the situation with Tropical Storm Hillary. Just a few hours ago, uh, south in San Diego, CNN's Kyung Hua uh, was picking up on some of the effects of Tropical Storm Hillary. Kyung, how are things looking there? Well, we are certainly seeing, Jim, the heaviest rain that we've seen throughout the day. The city officials here, the people who are watching the weather, uh, the, the mayor's office says that this is the thick of it. These are the next few hours where we're going to see the most amount of rain here in the city of San Diego. I'm standing in Mission Valley, and uh, this whole stretch is an area that typically sees flooding. That is not a surprise to people who live here or to city officials. So what the city has done in preparation for all of this, in addition to closing city so the city parks and city beaches, is they put up these signs to stop people from uh, coming into this area. But uh, if you could look at the video that we shot just within the last uh, couple of hours, people are ignoring these signs that are, are, are being put up and driving around them. Uh, it's A little bit of this is that people aren't used to this type of, of weather, especially in August. This is an extraordinarily unusual weather event here. So even though we're hearing that the Navy has moved 10 ships out of the, uh, the bay into uh, safer waters, um, despite the warnings that you're hearing from the mayor's office, some people just aren't taking things very, very seriously. But th the word from the city is listen and heed all the advice, pay attention. This rain is really starting to fall. The very big concern is flash flooding, people being unprepared and driving into some of these flood zones, Jim. All right, Kyung La, uh, get dry. We'll get back to you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's go to uh, Mayor, uh, I want to ask you if you felt the effects of this earthquake. We do want to remind our viewers that uh, on top of everything else happening this afternoon for the region, there's been a magnitude 5.1 earthquake. Um, but uh, the brunt of the storm is expected to hit your city uh, any moment now. How are things going? Well, you're exactly right, Jim. It is outside the window right now. It has increased uh, the amount of rain coming down in just the last few minutes. This is what we've been preparing for. Unlike earthquakes and wildfires, which we're used to in Southern California, this rainstorm has been headed our way for several days. It's given us the opportunity to prepare, and I believe that we're prepared and we'll get through this. And as we were looking at some of the images coming in uh, in L.A. and Santa Monica uh, earlier this afternoon, it looked as though some of these uh, you know, drainage systems 
uh, up in L.A. are just sort of getting overwhelmed already. Is that going to be a problem in San Diego? Absolutely. You know, we're not used to this level of precipitation generally, certainly not in the middle of summer in August. Uh, we're not built for this kind of rainfall. That's my main concern. Uh, both the high winds that could pose challenges for our power lines and the ability to get energy to the homes of our residents, as well as the potential for flooding in areas like where your correspondent is, just a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, that is a known area of flooding. We have positioned assets and personnel there to make sure that we can address it. Uh, but with what we're expecting, it may overwhelm us, uh, and we will, we're asking the public to stay out of those areas for your safety and the safety of our first responders. And what about the roadways, the freeways? Uh, I mean, you have the potential there for the flash flooding uh, problems to, to cause uh, issues there as well. No, it absolutely will. And this is exactly why we're telling people to stay home. Uh, and I'm heartened by the number of folks who are responding to that. You know, Jim, San Diego is the eighth largest city in this country. We're a city of over 1.3 million people, and the vast majority of folks are staying home. Many of our businesses, our tourist attractions are currently closed. That's giving us the space, really the grace to be able to do the work that we know how to do, which is to keep people safe and keep this city running. I think if San Diegans can give us enough time, probably until about uh, early morning tomorrow, I think we'll be squared away. Again, the message is very clear. The first of the rain is arriving right now. So for a lot of folks who are like, this has been much ado about nothing. I don't think you've seen it just yet. We're predicting from about 4 p.m. until about 8 or 10 o'clock tonight is really the high tide of the rain and the wind. And that's when you really want to shelter in place, take care of yourself and your loved ones, and allow us to do the work that we know how to do. All right. That is very good advice. Uh, Mayor Todd Gloria, uh, best of luck to you as you uh, deal with the uh, effects of uh, Tropical Storm Hillary. Many thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. All right, and the latest on how Los Angeles is dealing with Tropical Storm Hillary, that's coming up here in the CNN Newsroom. We'll be talking with the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. Uh, she's going to join us live with an update, plus this weekend's new... Chicks knitting again. Okay, we're listening to Dina talk about Chris Mace in Arizona. I'm going to volunteer. 
my services and, and file with. I've already tweeted her several times. I want to uh, join. They're going to sue him like he's facing another indictment in Arizona. Ah, ah. Nah. In another state, Arizona. If ha, ha, ha. Uh, Where to burn old diaper dine? You're gonna have to run from prison. similar to what happened in Georgia. My name is Dina Sai. Dolphin. Hope you don't get just Break this down. Now, Attorney General. So we can watch him run for prison. She's a Democrat. some derisive lobster. A very similar investigation that was Van Willis did out of Georgia. Now, interestingly, the indictment out of Georgia includes actions that Donald Trump and some of his co-conspirators, actually five total, including Donald Trump, evidently took actions in Arizona and are part of that indictment because of the fact that they were charged under the RICO statute. It gave Fannie Willis the jurisdiction to pursue those actions in that he undertook in Arizona as well. Now you might wonder, does this mean that the Arizona Attorney General can't also pursue those actions? Is there some sort uh -huh. of double jeopardy involved? No. 2019, the Supreme Court clarified its position on double jeopardy nah. and said that different sovereigns are able to pursue violations of their law, even if the conduct maybe is the same, which means that, yes, there is some overlap in nah. Jack Smith's January 6th indictment, in the too. Georgia uh -huh. indictment, and the Arizona indictment, if that were to come. There is overlap because there are the fake electors, and it all kind of became a part of this scheme to overturn the election. But because of that opinion, it's very clear that double jeopardy, that Donald Trump cannot claim double jeopardy because he has been broken the federal law, the document, the Georgia law, and um, the Georgia indictment and Arizona law, if they bring that indictment, even if the underlying conduct is all the same. So uh, there goes that one possible uh, defense that Donald Trump might say. Now, the Georgia indictment was revealing. It laid out quite a bit that would make it, I think, very hard for the attorney, attorney general not to pursue her own claims because Fannie Willis just laid out quite a bit of facts of how they broke the law in Arizona. Uh -huh. Now, she is um, investigating this, and let's kind of break down a little bit more of what the Georgia indictment says. This will give us a clue as to what she will indict him for in Arizona. Uh -huh. Arizona also has the additional fact of uh, Trump allies having um, hired a company to conduct the only private audit in America, uh, a hand recount trying to overturn the election. The actions of this company also seems to have broken the law, and there is yeah. a, a, a push there to investigate them as well. Yeah. So we may not only see Fucking indictment relating kind of closely to the fake electors and Fucker. the pushing of the uh, candidates, but under that hand recount and how that was handled as well. So let's go into a little bit more about what that indictment specifically says about Arizona, what we may see from the Arizona Attorney General in her own indictment, because she does indeed bring 
bring charges, which I say like, um, I, I likely see that happening. So there were five people under, and again, you know, the indictment that the, the Arizona Attorney General may bring is not limited, of course, to what Fannie Willis is claiming. There may be additional facts that are only Arizona know about, and so this may this may be incomplete. This is maybe just the base of what we may see. But out of that indictment, there is uh, Trump, and then there's Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Steve Chesbrough, and John Eastman, all actually pushing for election fraud claims in Arizona. Uh, and it came about three weeks after the election ended when Trump and Giuliani called then Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. Bowers, you know, is yeah. a Republican. Again, he's one of the Republicans who really ended up stopping the overturning of the election. We know the Governor Kemp. We know uh, Governor Ducey. Uh, and here again, another Republican, Rusty Bowers. Um, them coming to him thinking that maybe he was going to play ball being Republican, and he didn't. They made false statements to him, according to the indictment, in an effort to persuade him to appoint a new state of slate electors. Again, another slate of faked electors in Arizona trying to create um, confusion, either having Pence um, just certify those fake electors or at least buying time. That's what really the Trump team was trying to do. So the indictment cites four different situations where Trump and his al or his allies reached out to Bowers about these fake electors and a Republican. Bowers has testified already that he was unwilling to break his oath of office. Again, a Republican here stopping this um, Trump MAGA uh, push to overturn the election. He said that the, none of them had any evidence of fraud. So according to the indictment, members, quote, members of the enterprise corruptly solicited Georgia legislatures to unlawfully appoint their own presidential electors for the purpose of casting electoral votes for Donald Trump. They also made false statements to state legislatures during hearings and meetings in Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. We know that the Michigan Attorney General has pursued charges against the fake electors. Again, this is why we are likely to see some sort of charges coming out of Arizona as well, just giving us a glimpse of what we see. Now, Giuliani and Ellis evidently met with Arizona legislatures at a hotel in downtown Phoenix on November 30th, 2020, where they, quote, solicited, requested, and importuned, quote, them to appoint these fake electors. Uh, the next day, they met with Bowers and then-Senate President Karen Fawn and other Republican lawmakers to try to convince them to hold a special session of the legislature for the purpose of overturning and replacing Arizona's fairly elected electors. And nine days later, on December 12th, Chesterbro emailed documents to Arizona Republican Party Executive Director Gren Gregg detailing a way to end run the legislature and go forward with this alternative fake electors. 
uh, quote, the documents were to be used by Trump presidential nominees in Arizona for the purpose of casting electoral votes for Donald J John Trump. Jackass. And uh, again, this fake elector scheme, which That's was the brainchild Eastman, wanted to create some sort of confusion or justification to allow Pence to either uh, not certify the valid electors, somehow bide them time, make people have to go to court and buy them time. With the Fries app, you can always save big on your favorites with personalized coupons and deals. You can spend less and get more. Download the Fries app today and get savings designed with you in mind. Fries, fresh for everyone. No ads. No. Um, the indictment also says that Eastman on January 4th, 2021, called Bowers again and tried, uh, urged him or tried to kind of pushed him to appoint the presidential electors. Again, there's just a handful of Republican candidates who were kind of like the line, uh, the border between our democracy and all out um, fascism. Um, these Republicans who were willing to stand against Trump and his co-conspirators and not deny the valid election. Uh, so, so the Attorney General, um, has not issued a statement yet. She's uh, staying quiet on this. Uh, it's interesting. She is, uh, of course, a female. She is the Yay. first mom and only the second woman to ever be elected to the Arizona Attorney General position. And uh, as a female, I think it's kind of um, poetic that so many women are being involved here in holding Trump account accountable. I mean, not only the two female judges, but Fannie Willis um, out of Georgia, this attorney general in Arizona, because although Trump has insults everybody and is really awful the way he treats them, I think he holds a special uh, disgust for women even before he became president and how he talked about them, certainly how he acts with them as with the Access Hollywood tapes. And so to have so many women be the ones holding him accountable is I think some sort of poetic justice. Again, only the second woman ever to hold that position, a Democrat. And the thing is about Arizona is not only is it a swing state, but you know, I've, I, uh, basically grew up in Arizona and know it well. And there's a reason why Arizona elected John McCain years after years after years. There is certainly this independent Wild West streak in Arizona where they proudly want to kind of make their own decisions and feel like they have their own opinion. And having, we saw the backfire essentially politically of Trump and his allies trying to overturn the election. The current governor used to be the secretary of state and she was the one who oversaw the 2020 election. And as tight as that election was, remember it was much tighter than it was in Georgia, she was able to oversee it during the time that she was being, you know, viciously attacked by the Republicans. And it is her that was elected by the people to become governor over Carrie Lake, who was spouting the fact that the Arizona election was a sham. So Arizona voters resoundingly rejected the idea that their votes 
didn't validly elect a Biden. I don't think Arizona and Arizonan are the kind of people who want to be told that their votes don't count. And and that private audit, I think, was a major um, political backfire for Arizona because the idea that the government handed over to this private company, the company, again, was called... um, you know, cyber ninja company. The fact that they handed that over into some private facility, I think, outraged a lot of Arizonans because, you know, people there don't like the idea of something that is essential to them being kind of manipulated by. And I think that that was a major political backfire, which we saw by the governor now being um, a Democrat. And so let's talk a little bit about that audit because the former Maricopa County attorney, Rick Romley, a Republican, is calling for a separate investigation into the Cyber Ninja's CEO, Doug Logan, for potential criminal charges. So that could be, again, a dual indictment with the private audit which I think is actually just as awful for our democracy even as what Trump did because they're handing over without any kind of government oversight to this private company. I think Arizona is actually lucky it didn't end worse there. But he defied court orders to turn over thousands of communications related to the ballot review. And so he is not only in contempt of court, but he may have violated an Arizona state law that makes withholding public records a class six felony. So watch also for a pursuit of charges against that and uh, to hopefully stop this idea of these private audits. I mean, we have our next presidential election coming up, right, in 2024. Will we see more of these private audits in Republican-controlled states? And what is that going to end up looking like for our democracy? Arizona is in a um, unique opportunity to pursue criminal charges against the actions of that private company now to deter them or companies like them from flouting laws when handling our most sacrosanct democratic right, our literal ballot. So I, you know, let's keep an eye out on what Chris Mays here is willing to do in Arizona. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. I like she talks about women. Thank you for... about uh, Arizona cactus we have
And as presidential candidate 2024, I'm going to call for Mr. Trump's disqualification and immediate. Oh, going to Bond Christmas. Christmas. Said Christmas. Christmas. Whom I've already contacted. Christopher Perez, Perez, Trump for prison. Okay, thank you, Dina, for speaking on behalf of all women and for the great news about Trump facing more indictments in my home state of Arizona. You are so right. We are an independent state. There are more independent voters than Democrat or Republican in this state. I'm going to volunteer for Chris Mays whom I've already contacted a few times on Twitter as a heads up filing. This qualification. Yeah, fuck Bernovich and fuck the cyber ninjas. Fuck them. Okay. Chris Mays. Uh, she's lovely. She's a lovely person. She's so cute. Um. Hey, Chris Mays, I volunteer. How can I help? Hey, Chris Mays. Chris Mays. Mays, so glad. Thank you. of indicting Trump <laughs> how can I help I'd like to file for Trump's media disqualification based on 14th amendment can you please help me uh, file assist me I'm presidential. Trump for prison. Oh my God, it's getting dark. Trump for prison and uh, AZ Dems. I should uh, send Democrat. Your take. You taking. Thank you, Russ. Thanks, Rusty.
T-Y-S-M. So glad you're taking on indicting Trump in Arizona. How can I help? I'd like to file for Trump's immediate disqualification based on 14th Amendment. Can you please assist? I'm presidential candidate 2024. P.S. Thank you, Rusty. P.S. Thanks, Rusty. Touch everything Okay, Christmas. Dina. Oops, I should have tagged Dina. Okay, Trump co defendant just screwed Trump with Judge something. Judge. Yeah, the headlines are great these days. Let's close the headlines. <laughs> What Judge Trump gives. It's creating a little generation of Michael warriors. Michael Popak, Legal AF. We always expected that at least two or three of the defendants in Phony Willis's Georgia indictment would try to move the case out of state court and a state court judge, Judge McAfee, and drag it over to federal court in the Northern District of Georgia across the street. We always anticipated it. It was tried by Donald Trump, a similar maneuver in, uh, in his New York prosecution related to the Stormy Daniels business uh, fraud records case, and it failed there. Um, and he'll, uh, he'll try it again here. Mark Meadows is apparently going to be the test case because Mark Meadows has already filed a, what's called a notice of removal. 14 pages, a little longer than usual. I usually see them be about one or two pages. I'm going to talk about the removal process, what it means and what it doesn't mean for the case, and why Mark Meadows, I expect Donald Trump, and at least uh, Jeffrey Clark, who is the former uh, Deputy Attorney General, uh, number three in the Justice Department, who would also have grounds to try this trick. I'll talk about what it means, and also the new judge that's now been assigned, federal judge, who, if he takes jurisdiction over the case, would preside over the Georgia criminal prosecution of these individuals, while the remaining, let's say, 15 or 16 stayed in Fulton County State Court. So, Tony Willis would have to split her team and prosecute the cases across the street from each other, at apparently at different times. First, why is Mark Meadows doing this? Because he thinks he'll get a fairer shake in federal court, especially when he tries to raise what's called sovereign immunity or supremacy clause immunity to try to defeat the criminal case against him. I'll talk about that. First, let's let's mention who the judge has been assigned, because we have a judge. It's Judge Stephen C. Jones. He's an Obama appointee. He was a former assistant district attorney, not in Fulton County, in some other county in Georgia. He is um, a former superior court judge, state court judge, not in Fulton County. Um, and he was appointed by Obama and confirmed by the Senate 90 to 0. 
and he's led an exemplary judicial career ever since. Um, he hasn't had as high-profile cases as some, but he is a very well-respected jurist on the 11th, on the uh, Northern District of Georgia, which covers Atlanta and Fulton County, and whose appellate court is the 11th Circuit, the same 11th Circuit that is the appellate court over Florida, Judge Cannon, and things related to Mar-a-Lago, just to kind of set the stage. So first, what is the removal that they're trying and why are they trying it? Under 28 U.S.C. United States Code Section 1442, there's a provision that a, a person who was a federal officer and was acting under the color of his office, right? There's a causal connection between the office, the duties, and the crime or the charges against them. And who has a, a, a good faith federal defense to the state court crimes, to the state crimes. In this case, Mark Meadows is suggesting he has a supremacy clause sovereignty. If he has that, federal officer at the time do acting under the color of his office and not outside the scope of his office, we'll talk about that in a minute, and, um, and has a federal defense in this case under the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, he has the right, or any party has the right, to drag the case out of the state court for trial purposes and motion practice and discovery purposes and over to the federal court in that jurisdiction. That's what they're trying. They got Stephen Jones. I'm not sure Fawny Willis necessarily is going to fight having Stephen Jones be the lawyer, or the judge for her. He might be a very good pick. Out of the 15 judges that sit in the Northern District of Georgia Federal Court, four were appointed by uh, Trump. So we didn't get one of those. We got an Obama appointed judge. And you can make your own conclusions from that. Why is Meadows trying so hard? Because he wants a federal judge to determine whether he has a immunity defense. He's going to argue based on what's put present in the 14 pages where they basically advocated their case is that all Mark Meadows was doing was things that a normal chief of staff does for the person he works for, for his boss, Donald Trump. In fact, he listed, uh, they listed in their papers, he uh, arranged meetings, he contacted state officials on behalf of his boss, he went and visited state buildings on behalf of his boss in Georgia, he set up phone calls. I mean, the way they're describing it, he's not the chief of staff, he's like the executive assistant or secretary. Why don't they just list he got Donald Trump coffee and was his lapdog and carried his briefcase? But they're, they're, they're trying to minimize and shrink down uh, what is alleged that Mark Meadows did, which, of course, when you look at the indictment in 98 pages and all the paragraphs about, about Mark Meadows, you, did, you know he did a lot more, including the phone call to interfere with the election, calling Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, right, trying man. to convince him and lean on him to get rid of 12,000 votes. Thanks, Brad. Through mail-in ballots or absentee ballots, throw them out and give the state... Uh, and steal the state for Donald Trump. Is that within the course and scope appropriately of a chief of staff? And that's going to be the issue, re regardless of which court it's in. If it stays in state court, Judge McAfee, who's the youngest and, and newest judge who just got appointed in February, but is presiding over this case, is going to have to decide. He can read federal law and apply it just like anybody else, right? He'd been a, uh, he'd been a federal 
uh, prosecutor himself back in the day? Or is Judge Stephen Jones going to make these decisions? The first decision Stephen Jones has to make after seeing this notice of removal, full briefing, and likely a hearing in the month of August, early September, is does is there proper grounds to pull the case across into federal court? Now, let me let me just clear up some misconceptions I always see in social media whenever on Legal AF here on the YouTube channel for Midas Touch, um, we, we ever bring up this issue. This does not change the prosecutor. It will stay Fawny Willis, state prosecutor, Fulton County. It does not change the type of law, in this case, Georgia's state criminal law, penal code law, that's applied. It doesn't convert it into federal federal case law, federal crimes. It doesn't create um, a, if he's convicted in federal court, it doesn't create an opportunity for Donald Trump, if he's reelected, God forbid, to pardon him. He would be convicted of state crimes in a federal court. Happens every day. State issues get decided in federal court, civilly and criminally, every day. Either under the diversity jurisdiction provision, which puts parties from different states or countries and states who have business disputes or other disputes in federal court and criminal cases that belong in federal court, even ones that are state law based. So again, highlights, prosecutor stays, investigators stay, Georgia's criminal law stays, right? The only thing that goes is the courthouse. And it doesn't make it any, does not make it federally, presidentially subject to pardon just because it happened in a federal courthouse. We're just talking real estate. We're just talking a building. But why then does Mark Meadows and the others want to be there? Because they think it'll be a better place for them. Um, I mean, they didn't really wait to see, to be honest, who the judge would be in Georgia. McAfee is a, although he's 34 years old, has only been a, a, a judge for a short amount of time. That just, in fact, he'd never been a judge. He had been the, uh, he'd been the inspector general, the chief boy scout for uh, the state of Georgia under the governor, investigating public corruption and crime um, and civil matters. He'd never been a judge, but he's a Federalist Society member from, from law school. Uh, yes, he worked under Bonnie Willis when she was the head of the complex litigation department of the Fulton County DA before she became the Fulton County DA. But they didn't really even wait to see what he was going to do next. They were like, we'd rather be in federal court. Maybe we'll get a Trumper. Well, they didn't. But they still probably believe, his lawyers, that they'd rather brief and argue and then have the 11th Circuit with Judge William Pryor, Chief Judge, presiding, handle the issues of immunity, federal constitutional immunity, than a state court, uh, appellate court judge uh, sitting on the Georgia Supreme Court. And so it's probably not a bad decision. I uh, thought if I were representing, which I'm not, Mark Meadows to do that, and if they stay with Jones, either because he he he, he agrees that of all these factors are present to allow, or Tony Willis doesn't fight and they stay there, then the 11th Circuit and then the U.S. Supreme Court will be the ultimate arbiter. It's really Meadows trying to get over here into the federal system to take them up to federal courts for appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court, and that's the rationale. I'm sure Donald Trump's going to do the same thing. I'm sure Jeffrey Clark. The rest won't be able to because they weren't federal officers. Some may argue that they were working under the color of a federal officer and given direction by one, and they could get some sort of immunity as well. I don't think that works. But that doesn't mean they're not going to try. You could see Rudy Giuliani try this trick. You could see Sidney Powell or Jenna Ellis or Ken Cheeseborough or any of them. The Georgia the proper people, half the defendants, that are just Georgia people that did bad Georgia things, as alleged, 
they're going to stay in, in the Georgia State Court. And we'll see how many of these people try to flock over to the, to the federal courthouse. We'll follow it now that you know about the judge, you know about the procedure, you know about the immunity, the uh, supremacy clause immunity. And one last thing to round it out, because you'll hear a lot of people throwing around the term immunity. There is another type of immunity we've talked about on Legal AF. It's called the Westfall immunity. And it's basically an immunity from suit, meaning a person can't be sued if they're a federal officer and they're acting in their capacity as a federal officer when they did the bad thing. And they're sued civilly under what we call a tort, which is an injury either a business injury, a physical injury, a personal injury, a tort is committed, and they're sued for that tort in state or federal court, they have immunity that could say no. Even though I did the thing, I'm not, I'm immune from suit based on the Westfall immunity doctrine. And what happens is the U.S. government steps into the shoes and intervenes and substitutes in for the person named. And, and then asserts its sovereign immunity. You can't sue the U.S. government unless they want you to. We're not there because this is not civil. These are criminal claims and criminal counts against Mark Meadows and the others. So Westfall immunity doesn't apply. But supremacy clause immunity under, under the uh, Constitution, uh, Article 6, Clause 2, would apply. And so that's why they're fighting to get over into the federal track for appeal purposes. I'll follow and break down concepts just like this one at the intersection of law and politics. One place, the Midas Touch YouTube channel. We pull it all together like hot takes. You're going to love our long format podcast. We do it for about an hour, hour and a half. On Wednesdays and Saturdays, we pull together and curate the best uh, stories of we advocated their case. Is that... Hi, darling. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the university where they basically advocated their case, is that all Mark Meadows was doing was things that a normal chief of staff does for the person he works for, for his boss, Donald Trump. In fact, he listed, uh, they listed in their papers. He uh, arranged meetings. He contacted state officials on behalf of his boss. He went and visited state buildings on behalf of his boss in Georgia. He set up phone calls. I mean, the way they're describing it, he's not the chief of staff. He's like the executive assistant or secretary. Why don't they just list he got Donald Trump coffee and was his lapdog and carried his briefcase? But they're, they're, they're trying to minimize and shrink down uh, what is alleged that Mark Meadows did, which, of course, when you look at the indictment, 98 pages, and all the paragraphs about, about Mark Meadows, you, did, you know he did a lot more, including the phone call to interfere with the election, calling Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, trying to convince him and lean on him to get rid of 12,000 votes through mail-in ballots or absentee ballots, throw them out and give the state uh, and steal the state for Donald Trump. Is that within the course and scope appropriately of a chief of staff? And that's going to be the issue, regardless of which court it's in. If it stays in state court, Judge McAfee, who's the youngest and, and newest judge, who just got appointed in February, but is presiding over this case, is going to have to decide. He can read federal law and apply it just like anybody else. Right? He'd been a, uh, a, he'd been a federal uh, prosecutor himself <laughs> back in the day. Or is Judge Stephen Jones going to make these decisions? The first decision Stephen Jones has to make after seeing this notice of removal, full briefing, and likely a hearing in the month of August, early September, is does is there proper grounds to pull the case across into federal court? Now, let me 
Now let me just clear up some misconceptions I always see in social media whenever on Legal AF here on the YouTube channel for Midas Touch, um, we, we ever bring up this issue. This does not change the prosecutor. It will stay Phony Willis, state prosecutor, Fulton County. It does not change the type of law, in this case, Georgia's state criminal law, penal code law, that's applied. It doesn't convert it into federal federal case law, federal crimes. It doesn't create um, a, if he's convicted in federal court, it doesn't create an opportunity for Donald Trump, if he's reelected, God forbid, to pardon him. He would be convicted of state crimes in a federal court. Happens every day. State issues get decided in federal courts civilly and criminally every day, either under the diversity jurisdiction provision, which puts parties from different states or countries and states who have business disputes or other disputes in federal court and criminal cases that belong in federal court, even ones that are state law based. So again, highlights, prosecutor stays, investigators stay, Georgia's criminal law stays, right? The only thing that goes is the courthouse and it doesn't make it any, does not make it federally, presidentially subject to pardon just because it happened in a federal courthouse. We're just talking real estate. We're just talking a building. But why then does Mark Meadows and the others want to be there? Because they think it'll be a better place for them. Um, I mean, they didn't really wait to see, to be honest, who the judge would be in Georgia. McAfee is a, although he's 34 years old, has only been a, a, a judge for a short amount of time. And had just, in fact, he'd never been a judge. He had been the, uh, he'd been the inspector general, the chief boy scout for uh, the state of Georgia under the governor, investigating public corruption and crime. Um, and civil matters, and never been a judge. But he's a Federalist Society member from, from law school. Uh, yes, he worked under Fonnie Willis when she was the head of the complex litigation department of the Fulton County DA before she became the Fulton County DA. But they didn't really even wait to see what he was going to do next. They were like, we'd rather be in federal court. Maybe we'll get a Trumper. Well, they didn't. But they still probably believe, his lawyers, that they'd rather brief and argue and then have the 11th Circuit with Judge William Pryor, Chief Judge, presiding, handle the issues of immunity, federal constitutional immunity, than a state court, uh, appellate court judge uh, sitting on the Georgia Supreme Court. And so it's probably not a bad decision uh, if, I, if I were representing, which I'm not, Mark Meadows to do that. And if they stay with Jones, either because he, 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 he agrees that of all these factors are present to allow, or Fonny Willis doesn't fight and they stay there, then the 11th Circuit and then the U.S. Supreme Court will be the ultimate arbiter. It's really Meadows trying to get over here into the federal system to take them up to federal courts for appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court, and that's the rationale. I'm sure Donald Trump's going to do the same thing. I'm sure Jeffrey Clark. The rest won't be able to because they weren't federal officers. Some may argue that they were working under the color of a federal officer and given direction by one, and they should get some sort of immunity as well. I don't think that works. But that doesn't mean they're not going to try. You could see Rudy Giuliani try this trick. You could see Sidney Powell or Jenna Ellis or Ken Cheeseborough or any of them. The Georgia proper people, half of the defendants, that are just Georgia people that did bad Georgia things, mm -hmm. as alleged, they're going to stay in, in the Georgia State Court. And we'll see how many of these people try to flock over to the, to the federal courthouse. We'll follow it now that you know about the judge, you know about the procedure, you know about the immunity, the uh, supremacy clause immunity. 
Now, one last thing to round it out, because you'll hear a lot of people throwing around the term immunity. There is another type of immunity we've talked about on Legal AF. It's called the Westfall immunity, and it's basically an immunity from suit, meaning a person can't be sued if they're a federal officer and they were acting in their capacity as a federal officer when they did the bad thing, and they're sued civilly under what we call a tort, which is an injury, either a business injury, a physical injury, personal injury, a tort is committed, and they're sued for that tort in state or federal court, they have immunity. They can say, no, even though I did the thing, I'm, not, I'm immune from suit based on the Westfall immunity doctrine. And what happens is the U.S. government steps into the shoes and intervenes and substitutes in for the person named and, and then asserts its sovereign immunity. You can't sue the U.S. government unless they want you to. We're not there because this is not civil. These are criminal claims and criminal counts against Mark Meadows and the others. So Westfall immunity doesn't apply, but supremacy clause immunity under, under the uh, Constitution uh, Article 6, Clause 2 would apply. And so that's why they're fighting to get over into the federal track for appeal purposes. I'll follow and break down concepts just like this one at the intersection of law and politics. One place, the Midas Touch YouTube channel. We pull it all together. You like hot takes? You're going to love our long format podcast. We do it for about an hour, hour and a half. On Wednesdays and Saturdays, we pull together and curate the best at the, uh, stories of law and politics, and we do the analysis for you using our vast experience as longtime practitioners in courthouses and courtrooms, just like the ones we're describing. And then, if you want to watch us live on YouTube for the recording of, of Legal AF, the podcast, join us. We have a huge crowd, 20,000 people or more are on live chat with us, and then you know we'll have half a million people watch it before the week is over. And then you can also listen to it. We drop the audio right off the video podcast. You can pick it up everywhere audio podcasts are platformed, including um, uh, Google, Spotify, and Apple. If you like what I'm doing, I'm Michael Popak. You can go find me on the YouTube channel for Midas Touch. Slide over to Playlist. Look for Michael Popak. You'll find all of my hot takes and analysis there in one convenient location. You can also follow me on social media. Uh, including now on threads at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak. Until the next hot take from Legal AF. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram at Midas Touch to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. You can sip on just this all day and it will train your body to become a natural fat burner. I lost 26 pounds and had to buy all new pants. Nutrition expert Kellyanne Petrucci has a plan for sustained weight loss. A slimmer weight. Trump could have been discouraged, Trump would judge. She took money for helping to get Nuclear material into really Russia. Created roadmaps, put him and Trump in prison. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. The foundation is a racketeering enterprise. It's a racketeering enterprise. <laughs> the RICO statute. I was the first one to use the racketeering statute for public corruption. I did it against. Most of Ed Koch's administration. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs>
Well, Ed wasn't paying attention. Well, they were stealing millions. So there we have Hillary. You can't vote for her. You can't. I mean, you just can't. You can't put a criminal in the White House. You can't do it. Now we have Donald Trump. The Michael Popak Legal AF back in 2016, that was Rudy Giuliani campaigning for Donald Trump, saying that he, as the godfather of the racketeering influence and corrupt organization act statute, that it was it should be properly applied to Hillary Clinton and that we can't send a criminal to the White House. Now let's talk about the sweet irony of that, because Mr. Rico has just been Ricoed himself. I would love to take credit for that turn of the phrase, but that's from the Wall Street Journal, a Rupert Murdoch paper. What are they talking about? Rudy Giuliani, before he became a criminal defendant and before he was the mayor of New York, had a reasonably successful career as a prosecutor. He was even in the Department of Justice as the number three attorney, deputy attorney general for the entire United States. And there he decided uh, that there was an, a statute that had been sitting on the books, a criminal federal statute, sitting on the books since the 1970s, passed to fight organized crime, kind of all came out of the godfather era in our country. Um, and it was called, and is called, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act. It's it's referred to as RICO. By the way, they picked the initials in order to have some sort of Italian-sounding name as a side note. The RICO statute is now not only on the federal books, but on most states have their own version and call it RICO. So Georgia has a RICO statute. And the irony now is that the originator, the person who basically wrote the textbook on how to use RICO against organizations that aren't necessarily organized crime or the part of the mob, is now being prosecuted for violating those very sets of statutes. Mm -hmm. So what I was getting to is when he was in the Department of Justice, he dusted off an old statute that had been on the books since the 1970s called RICO and figured out a way and hired prosecutors under him to use it to go after the very, very top, the creme de la creme of the criminals in a criminal conspiracy so that they're Thank not you, just Giuliani. you know prosecuting and convicting the foot soldiers. They wanted the tops right, the heads of the organization. When he got into the Southern District of New York as the U.S. attorney, he was appointed there by the then president, and he served in that role from 1983 to 1989. He is famous, infamous, if you will, for having taken the RICO statute, dusted it off, rewritten for prosecutors into the future, like one Fulton County District Attorney, Fawny Willis, how to use it in creative ways that maybe even the people that put that statute on the books in Congress hadn't anticipated. So he is the godfather. He's referred to as the godfather of RICO. And he used it not just in organized crime, although he did use it against the infamous five families, you know, from Godfather fame in New York to bring them down. He used it to not just get the lower level soldiers of the mafia and the, and the organized crime, but he, he got the top people, too, and put them all in jail. But that's not the only time he used it. And as he just referenced in the video clip that we played at the top of this hot take, he used it in other ways as any good prosecutor would, and wrote the textbook and the blueprint about how to use it into the future. So he used it against the wolves of Wall Street, the financiers like Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken, who were put away for years and hundreds of millions of dollars stripped away from them because 
they played on an unlevel playing field in the securities markets on Wall Street, and they took advantage of mom-and-pop investors and insider traded to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. He used it against them. They weren't the mafia. They were organized crime in their own way because these statutes, the one that Phony Willis is using, the one that Rudy Giuliani used um, against others when it was appropriate, only require two underlying predicate acts or crimes and then overt acts, which are steps taken by every party that's a participant in the conspiracy. And in the indictment in Georgia, there are 161 overt acts, many of which were involving Rudy Giuliani, who was the captain of Team Crazy, who went around in, to, to attack and pressure election officials, elected officials, hold phony legislative hearings in which they brought in false and fraudulent election data to show that there was some sort of fraud when there wasn't. He led the lawsuits. He implemented the crazy pipe dreams of John Eastman and Ken Cheeseborough, these legal halfwits who wrote you know, the absent-minded constitutional law professors who wrote, you know, well, here's how we will create fake electors and then we'll have Mike Pence not recognize the real electors and throw it over to the state houses and make Donald Trump the president. Or we know this isn't going to work, but it'll buy us enough time and then maybe we can, you know, our pressure campaign will work. And all that is part of the conspiracy that's reflected in the 98-page indictment. Rudy Giuliani has 13 crimes, criminal counts against them in that indictment. But the big one, the headline here is the godfather of RICO who wrote the textbook on how to use it and stretch it is, 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 uh, is being prosecuted under those very same laws. And you just heard him admit in that clip that he used it in public corruption cases. Let me repeat that. Because the, the new version, the new version of Rudy Giuliani, who's running around on television and giving quotes, is saying the opposite of that clip I just showed. Okay? I'm going to show you the flip-flop in a minute. We're going to play it here in the middle. And I'm going to show you how he's flipped. Because now he claims, oh, Rico's only for organized crime. I, I was the father of Rico. Uh, it's not being used properly against me. It was never supposed to be for election fraud. Wrong. Even another Rudy Giuliani lookalike from 2016 in the clip we just played in front of other elected officials when he was campaigning for Donald Trump and still listed as the former mayor of New York, you can see on that line, instead of currently indicted co-conspirator in, uh, in Georgia and unindicted co-conspirator in Jack Smith's federal case, right? That's what, you couldn't fit that all on the cryon at the bottom underneath his name. But then he was saying that Hillary Clinton was a member of an organized criminal enterprise and that she shouldn't go to White House. She should go to jail. She was a criminal. Don't put a criminal in the White House. That should be the slogan Joe Biden actually runs with this, this coming election. Don't put a criminal in the White House. Vote for Joe Biden. That alone should get him enough votes to put him over the top. So let me just show the quick split screen here because it's so fascinating yeah. <laughs> to watch because I think these idiots these criminals like Donald Trump and others don't think that there's a wayback machine or there's any way to, to go find clips and video and audio and tweets and social media postings from the past and compare it to what they're saying now. That's what prosecutors are doing. That's the basis of a lot of the indictments or the social media postings, the video. Hey there.
Look our songs on celebration time. Just imagine how happy things will be when he's freaking disqualified. So call the DOJ. Do your job as an American. Make a free phone call. How hard is that? 202-514-2000. Do your job as an American. Okay, Chris Christie scares Trump away from debate stage. Yeah, uh, he knows that he doesn't have to. He's in the lead. If you're in the lead, that that's a, you know, and the fa it's a fascist tactic. He hasn't doesn't have to answer to anybody. Why do people say that our free drone giveaway is? Hey, folks, I'm Tennessee Brando with the Midas Touch Network. Now, Donald Trump has said that he is going to skip out on the Republican debate. And instead, he's going to sit down with a one-on-one -on -one interview with Tucker Carlson. Yeah, so, I think that's kind of smart. You know, media savvy. You don't party. have to debate. Take a look at this clip and let us come back and talk about it. Do you prefer that Donald Trump on the debate stage? Because the Republicans are giving him a pass. And win the Republican nomination be on the stage. Because I think Republican voters deserve the respect to show up and to argue the issues with the other candidates who are qualified. So if you've qualified for the stage, which Trump has, not showing up is completely disrespectful to the Republican Party, who has made you their nominee twice, and to the Republican voters, who support you're asking for again. So I think everybody who qualifies should show up and be willing to stand up and defend the record and advocate for what they want for the future. I've got to be honest with you guys. Chris Christie is the only Republican these days that I can actually stand to listen to, other than maybe Liz Cheney, uh, because he's reasonable and he makes sense. And at least he tries to talk about the issues at hand, even though I may not agree with him, wouldn't vote for him. I still appreciate the fact that he tries to keep things about their issues at hand. And here is Donald Trump skipping out on the Republican debate to sit down one-on-one -on -one with none other than Tucker Carlson. And that's not just a slap in the face to the Republican Party. It's actually a slap in the face to everybody and everybody involved because it's just another classic case of Donald Trump making this all about him. Donald Trump does not want to be on the debate stage because if he was on the debate stage, he would have to talk about the issues at hand. And we all know that he wants to take this and turn this into his circus. He wants to talk all about him and all of his troubles and how bad the evil, mean Democrats have been to him. He knows that if he was on that stage that Chris Christie is going to take him to task. And Trump's ego will not allow him to stand up there next to Chris Christie and be on the receiving end. Donald Trump is the bully. Donald Trump loves to bully people. And what we've always learned is bullies always get set down by the one guy that don't care to get hit. And Chris Christie is the guy that don't care to get hit. See, back when Trump debated the Republicans when he was running for president, he was the bully. He was on the offense. He was going after them. He was going after Jeb Bush. He was going after Marco Rubio. He was putting them down, calling them all the names. He had them on the defense. He had them running from him. If he got on stage with Chris Christie, it would be the opposite. And Donald Trump's ego cannot stand the idea that someone could upstage him and be the bully. When I was a kid, I grew up during the Mike Tyson era. And I love the way Mike Tyson just ragdolled all of his opponents. You didn't have to buy the pay-per-views as a kid because you could watch the highlight reel on ESPN. The walk to the ring would be longer than most Tyson fights. But one day, he came up against Buster Douglas, who had just lost his mother. And Mike Tyson was out partying and living it up and not training and not taking Buster Douglas serious. And Buster Douglas lost his mom, and he didn't care to get hit. So he gets over there in Japan against Tyson. He stands up against him. He doesn't care if he gets hit or not. doesn't matter to him. And he came back on Tyson, and Tyson had never had that happen. Tyson had never had someone get up off the floor and come back and want more of it. 
and he ends up knocking out Mike Tyson. That's exactly what would happen here to Donald Trump if he went up against Christie. Christie's a guy who doesn't care if he hits him, because Christie's going to come after him, and the bully can't stand that. I agree with Chris Christie that it is a slap in the face of the Republican Party because Republicans should be able to hear the candidates and hear their ideas. This is showing that Donald Trump is separate. Donald Trump is something else. Donald Trump doesn't care about the Republican Party. He doesn't care about the issues at hand. He only cares about himself. And going and sitting down with Hunter Carlson is a way that he can try to make himself look good because he doesn't give a shit about the rest of the issues the country faces. He doesn't care. None of this is about the issues at hand. For those out there that are going to go vote and cares about the issues at hand, Donald Trump is not your guy no matter what side of the fence you may end up on. Donald Trump doesn't care about anyone but himself. This is all designed. A sit down with Tucker Carlson is a slap in the face to every working person in this country. Because he wants to sit and talk about everything that Joe Biden has got wrong. Here's his chance to do that. You know, if, if, if Trump had been smart this entire time, which we know he's not, because his ego won't allow him to be for five minutes. But if Trump had been smart, he would have simply not contested the election once he got his recounts, once he realized he lost. And he did know he lost, by the way. He knew he lost. He would have been much better off to say, okay, well, the American people have spoken, and uh, they've chose Joe Biden as president. I disagree with their decision, and I'm going to come back in four years and tell you why. And then if he'd have just went away and shut his mouth long enough, he could have come back later, and there might have been some people that would have said, well, you know, hey, but he's got some points. But instead, he goes the exact opposite way and digs himself deeper and deeper into this hole. He was told, you'll be battling legal battles for the rest of your life if you go down this road. And he went down that road because it's, he's so selfish and because his ego will not allow him to do anything else. And now the whole thing is about him. So not only is it a slap in the face of the Republican Party, it's a slap in the face of Republican voters. It's a slap in the face of Americans, but he's not willing to stand up there and talk about what people are going through. He just wants to go on and on about what he's going through. I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to be voting in the Republican primary. I don't have a dog in that fight. But if I was, I would take this as an insult, and I would be leaning towards someone like Chris Christie, who at least will talk about the issues at hand and will address me. Now, I have Republican friends that say this to me, hey, Christie's, Christie's talking. He's pointing things out. And I'm like, yeah, he is. At least he's doing that. We don't have, we don't agree with him, but I can respect that much more than I can somebody who's just a spoiled brat and wants to sit and talk constantly about nothing but themselves. When are Republicans ever going to wake up and realize they can't win with him and they're not going to win without him if something don't change? They've got to throw him under the bus. They've got to be the one that cuts that cord and says, we can't do this. They have to be the one to walk away from them. If, if they don't, they're going to keep losing. And they, I think they know that. And that's what they're up against. So uh, it's going to be interesting going forward. I will probably watch the Republican debates. I want to see if they stay on point. I want to see if they talk about the issues at hand. I hope that it's not just them talking about what Trump's going through and what Trump's doing to their party. I think they would be much better served to just get up there and talk about the issues and stay on point. And just ignore Donald Trump. Don't even don't even acknowledge him. Don't even acknowledge that he's there. That that would be my advice if I was giving any advice to Republicans. Don't even acknowledge he's there. Say, hey, we're here about the issues. We're here about the voters. You're probably still going to lose, but you would at least have a better chance of getting through to a moderate or getting through to somebody that was an independent that was on the fence. You're not going to get through going through that same old tired 
We're all so sick and tired of this Trump rhetoric. We're so tired of hearing this. It's an absolute shame and a disgrace that as Americans we've had to live through this bullshit. But if you'd have just been man enough to say, I lost, you know? I, I mean, going back to that Mike Tyson fight, I used to try to argue that when I was a kid. I used to say, yeah, if you'll notice, the referee actually picked the count up in the wrong place. When, 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 when Tyson knocked down Douglas, he did. He actually picked the count up in the wrong place. Tyson won. And even Tyson came out and said, guys, quit arguing that. I got my ass kicked. And Trump can't do that. Trump can't say, guys, quit arguing that. I got my ass kicked. He just has to dig himself deep. So I'll be watching to see the Republican debates, and I'm sure we're going to get a barrage of verbal diarrhea clips that we can react to once Trump sits down with Tucker Carlson. That's where we're at in America. But I'll tell you where we're at here on Midas Touch. I know we may have already did it. We may have already crossed over the 1.5 million. I know that's what we were headed for, and we're going to cruise right on toward 2 million subscribers here. So you guys be sure and hit that subscribe button. Get those videos out there. We stand for truth. We stand for democracy. And uh, it's always a good time here on Midas Touch. So until next time, I'm Tennessee Brando. You guys keep tuning in. I'll keep telling you the truth. Hey, Midas Mighty. Love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. At Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Okay, I already did that. Um... Typically fascist thing to do. I refuse to debate. Just because you can. He needs to be fucking humiliated. Everybody needs to share pro-democracy shit. Okay, just for Christ. Okay, let's see here. Just uh. Modest touch. Modest news. Um, New York Times politics, Young Democrats of America, good enough for government work. Chris Christie, he's not scared. He, Chris Christie, doesn't scare. He's he's scared of the American public. And it's a fucking scandal. Patriotism and. And religion are the last refuge of a scam. Scoundrel. Trista Perez. Wanna be fascist? Go to jail. Christopher Perez, Trump for prison.
patriotism and religion are the last refuge of a scoundrel. I'm going to tweet that now. Patriotism and religion are the last refuge of a scoundrel and a scourge. Trista for prize. Trump for prison. Do your damn job or you're fired in advance. DOJ Krim Dev. Justice Department. The Justice. De Justice. DOJ. Touch, touch. Scared coward, yeah, he is. Um, I don't know. He's having the time of his life. I don't think he's fucking scared at all. must be our national just praise Never argues to the issues he cries about his. <laughs> that's how I, um, that's, that's my take on the Trista. Surprise. That's my take on this stuff. Trista's take, Trista's talkie, <laughs> look like Trista talkie, Trista take. Imagine the fucking look on his face.
He's gonna shard himself. <laughs> Comedy, triste. Opinion. Oh man, it's getting dark quickly. Democrats. Occupy Democrats. Trust the first Senate. Washington Post. Okay. Good enough government work. Comedy. 29 followers. I got 16 followers now on Christopher Perez. Very slow. Well, I should post more stuff. Okay. From that account. You guys still there? Shot through the heart. I fucking hate Bon Jovi and uh, Aerosmith sucks too. And uh, Guns N' Roses, my least favorite rock bands, some of them. Okay. Stupid fucking hair band. Trump now facing indictment in another state. Nah, three hours. <laughs> what a burn. <laughs> How some derisive laughter. Out of Georgia, involving again claiming that the 2020 election was fraud and criminal action in pursuit of changing How about fucking extorting Now, the Arizona Attorney General is evidently investigating actions that were taken in her state that Arizona? were very similar to what happened in Georgia. My name is Dina Saidal from the Midas Touch Network. Let's Hi, break Dina. this down. Now, Attorney General Chris May yes, was elected Arizona. in 2022. She's a Democrat. Her. She is pursuing a very similar investigation that what Fannie Willis did out of Georgia. Yes. Now, interestingly, you, the Chris indictment May. out of Georgia includes actions that Donald Trump and Thank some you. of his co-conspirators actually five total including donald trump evidently took actions in arizona and are part of that criminal indictment because of the fact that they were charged under the rico statute it gave fannie willis the jurisdiction uh, to pursue those actions i want to be that he undertook in Arizona as well. And you might wonder, does this mean that the Arizona Attorney General can't also pursue those actions? Is there some sort of double jeopardy involved? 2019, the Supreme Court clarified its position on double jeopardy and said that different sovereigns are able to pursue violations of their law, even if the conduct maybe is the same, which means that Yes, there is some overlap in Jack Smith's January 6th indictment, the Georgia indictment, and the Arizona indictment, if that were to come. There is overlap because there are these fake electors, and it all kind of became a part of this scheme to overturn the election. But because of that opinion, it is very clear that double jeopardy, that Donald Trump cannot claim double jeopardy because he has been broken federal law with Jack Smith, the Georgia law 
and um, the Georgia indictment and Arizona law if they bring that indictment, even if the underlying conduct is all the same. So uh, there goes that one possible uh, defense that Donald Trump might say. Now, the Georgia indictment was revealing. It laid out quite a bit that would make it, I think, very hard for the attorney, ger attorney general not to pursue her own claims because Fannie Willis just laid out quite a bit of facts of how they broke the law in Arizona. Now, she is um, investigating this, and let's kind of break down a little bit more of what the Georgia indictment says. This will give us a clue as to what she will indict him for in Arizona. Arizona also has the additional fact of... Welcome back. We are listening to this great Billy Carson lecture. It's called, Was Jesus a Student of Thoth, or Were They the Same Person? This was posted two days ago. This is You're never going to make you... This is a sound of my, my new baby um, panda face. Okay. Study the book of Deuteronomy in Bible study. They're never going to make you do a whole, let's spend the next three months on Deuteronomy and break that down. They're, not, they're never going to do that. <laughs> it's going to be the same old stuff, picking out a couple of different, uh, a couple of verses, taking them out of context and trying to get you to apply that to your life without any real context of what was going on, no knowledge, no understanding. Some stuff in the Bible can be applied to your life and be great. Some of it can put you in a mental enslavement, a mental prison. So you have to be very, very careful with the biblical text. As with any religious text, you have to be very careful in what you're believing in and what you're allowing your mind to encompass as actual truth. There's things that are in the biblical text. There's things that are in the Quran. There's things that are in various different religious books that I think are phenomenal. I think that I can apply some of those things to my life and get a great result, which I do. Right? Thou shalt not kill. I mean, that's a good, that's good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's good stuff in Proverbs and, you know, and, and Ecclesiastes and things like that. There's good stuff in there. But you got to remember, it's remixed with a lot of craziness. It's remixed with a lot of sociopathic, narcissistic behavior. In one second, you have God is all-knowing and all-loving God. And then the next second, he's a brutal, murdering killer. Who's killing all the people in the Bible? Check out that video that I made on YouTube. Who's doing all the killing in the Bible? Let me see if I can find that video and drop that link in here for you guys. Who's doing it? Who's doing all the killing in the Bible? Anybody? Does anybody know? It's, um, um, I'll give you a hint. Satan, uh, it ain't Satan. <laughs> it ain't Satan. Uh, and Leo. I found it. Let me give you. Let me get. Let me give you guys this link right quick. Make sure you take some time to go watch this video. I'm dropping a link in the comments right now. If you're on Twitter, just go to my YouTube account and type in Billy Carson. Who's doing all the Who's doing all the killing in the Bible? I just dropped that link in there for you. Watch that in your leisure when you get a chance. It's not Satan. Who's killed millions of people? Slaughtered them brutally. Who's killed children, babies? Who's ordered the brutal murder and killing of men, women, and children? Blood and Leo. It's not Satan. Pretty interesting. So that's why I attribute 
the God of the Bible, which is actually not the God of the universe, is a entity, actually several entities, to be honest with you, because it's more than one God in the Bible. They use the word God singular, but that's a mistranslation. It's actually gods with an S. Nephilim. They slip up a couple times and say gods in the Bible with an S. When they're trying to identify the monotheistic version of God, they always take the S off. In true reality, when the ancient text, you find that there was the S was there. But these people were evil, brutal, ruling, psychopathic, sociopaths, narcissists. And they, um, they were deadly people, very deadly, very, very um, murderous, killing people, ruthless, ruthless killers. And then you pray to them thinking that that was actually the creator of the universe when it's not. There is a creator of the universe. There is a divine love that exists that permeates the entire universe. But the one written about in that book is not it. It's not it. So at least you can have solace in knowing that there is a creator. There is a divine. <clears throat> Thanks for 230. Did you know Yay. that you could get 50 to over $150,000 of investment capital at 0% interest? <sighs> so at least you can have solace in knowing that there is a creator. There is a divine energy that flows through everything and in, in, in every atom in, in the entire universe. That's based on science. We are living in a creation. That's based on real science. What I'm telling you is in that book, that's not the one who did it. That's not the one who did it. Not even close. Even they said themselves, and I do mean they, that the creator of all will punish them for what they did here on this planet. That's in the Sumerian tablets. They said the creator of all will punish them for what they did. They even know they have a reckoning in themselves. They never called God a him or a he. Don't he do it. They never said, they never said him or he. They called it the creator of all. And where else does that show up? In the Emerald Tablets. Both never called himself a god. He never told people to pray to him. He's one of the very few that did not masquerade as a god, although he could have. When he left uh, the different regions of the earth, the people there who were left behind eventually deified him because that's what people do. We do dumb stuff. You start saying, it was this guy was God. Like no, he wasn't. Cult. As a matter of fact, there's a verse here where people start groveling at his feet. He says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Calm down. <laughs> I'm a son of Atlantis. I'm here to help you. He didn't say, yes, grovel at my feet. I am your Lord God. You pray to me. You blah, 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 blah. He didn't do that. Now, some of these people, his relatives, his uncle did that. His uncle made people pray to him. His cousin made people pray to him. His brother, Amin-Ra, made people say amen after every prayer. And they were at odds. Him and his brother were at odds with each other. They always fought. They had battles. And uh, Thought Me, also known as E-I-N-K-E, said, Thoth, you go to, go to the other side of the planet, man. Start something over there. And Thoth took some African all mix with him to Mesoamerica and kick-started the whole Teotihuacan civilization. What does Teotihuacan mean? Translate to the city of Thoth. That's in Mexico. That's where I'm going in two weeks. Teotihuacan, the city of Thoth. That's why the pyramid there, the pyramid of the sun, is the same exact dimensions of the base 
the Great Pyramid at Giza. The alignment is the same alignment with Orion at the Great Pyramid and the other two pyramids that are sitting there on the Giza Plateau. Both pyramids are built on top of aquifers, right? And the Pyramid of the Sun, which is the larger pyramid at Teotihuacan, is exactly 50% the height of the Pyramid uh, at Giza, the Great Pyramid at Giza. It's the same, same architect, same exact architect. His name is Thoth. He went there with Africans from uh, Africa and built the Teotihuacan civilization. They extended all throughout Mesoamerica, all down into Tulum, down in through the jungle, into the Yucatan Peninsula, down into Chichen Itza. All of that was built. The Mayans built nothing. And they admit they built nothing in their own records. They will teach you this when you go study archaeology and ancient civilizations in college. The Mayans built absolutely nothing. They had no knowledge. They inherited what was already there. The Aztecs, who came a couple hundred years after the Mayans, also inherited what was there. The Aztecs were uh, in, a, in a, um, another part of Mesoamerica where they, uh, they were living in a valley. That, that valley had a volcanic eruption. The mountain behind it was a volcano. It was active. It erupted. It destroyed everything. Some of them died. They had to go find a new place to live. As they journeyed through the jungle, they stumbled upon Teotihuacan. And guess what? They moved right on in. Again, they built nothing. They built nothing. It was already there. Up until certain parts of the dynastic, like the later dynastic era of Egypt, they built nothing. Now, some of the parts like Karnak and Luxor, which are a lot newer, yes, they had their hand in that. Clearly, you can see not super megalithic structures. Clearly, you can see blocks put into blocks cut and then stacked on top of each other in different ways. Some of the knowledge had been lost. The super ancient, super megalithic structures that were built were coming out of Kemet long before the dynastic era even happened. See? So we're talking about a super ancient culture and a super ancient race of people that encompassed the whole planet. They went around the entire planet, pole to pole, creating and building civilizations everywhere, megalithic structures that were very similar in style and size. And over time, their knowledge had become lost. And whoever was around moved in and inherited what was already there. All right? That's how it got there. Anyway, so... Yeah, I'll be in Teotihuacan, the city of Thoth, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to go there to film for the new TV series, Anunnaki History. It's a brand new series that I'm creating on Forbidden Knowledge TV. It's going to be on documentary level quality. The quality is going to be just like the Black Knight Satellite documentary you saw, which won Independent Film of the Year. So that's the quality level it's going to be on. I'm going to get some on-site video footage done to add to the show, to the TV series. And so that'll be one of the first places I go on-site. Uh, with you know to film uh, for the Anunnaki History TV series, but tonight's been a great night. I'm going to come back again and do some more on these topics. I'm going to continue to teach. I'm going to continue to bring the wisdom and the knowledge. I'm going to continue to bring information that people can look up and research for themselves. Because why? If you don't do your own research, you have nothing. If you rely on every person that you hear speaking to give you knowledge versus you hearing it and going, wow, that sparked something in me. Let me check this out. Now you're growing. Now you're becoming better. Now you're ascending. Now you're working on becoming an ascended master. And you begin to dig in and follow up 
and look into things yourself. You might find things that I never said. You might find things that connect the dots to other things that I have never even thought of before. You might come up with a different opinion than I have. Guess what? That's okay. That's okay too. But at least you took the time, the energy, and the effort to begin to enlighten yourself by asking yourself questions and looking up those answers. See? The more we rely on outside sources for all information, the dumber we get. Like this AI thing that's going on right now. I'm so glad I got the knowledge in my head. I'm so you have no, I'm so happy that the knowledge is in here. You're gonna see situations where people who look like they're experts on information are gonna be asked random questions on live video and they won't be able to come up with the answer because they don't have it in here. They were pressing buttons on a computer or a phone and it gave them the information, it gave them answers and they regurgitated it like a robot. When you don't have the information in here, you're useless. You're useless, you have nothing. You have nothing. I've been on over 3,000 podcasts from questions ranging from ancient civilizations all the way to quantum physics, philosophy, philosophies, um, you know, uh, what else I've, I've talked about? Biology, rocket science, astrophysics. I mean, you name it. And guess what? 99% of the time, I have a great conversation and I have all the answers. Why? Because the information is in here. I didn't squander my time on this planet. I didn't squander my ability to grow this muscle right here. I didn't squander it. While all my friends were out partying and getting drunk and getting high and having sex with a million mm -hmm. girls and spending all their money on clubs, I was filling this up. I had a little party in here and there. I got my little piece in here, but I didn't overdo it. Everything within balance. Everything within balance. While they were running around the streets, spending up all their money, I was getting the knowledge and I was applying the knowledge and building businesses and building myself up. Now you can ask me questions in financial literacy. You can ask me questions in dealing with ancient civilizations. You can ask me questions in quantum physics. You can ask me questions in philosophy. You can ask me questions about anything, pretty much. And 99% of the time, I'm going to have some answers. I mean, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. But damn it, I got a lot of answers. You know why? Because I spend my time in these things. I spend all my time with these things, books. I spend all my time studying and researching. I spend all my time, I spent over 20 years reading over 1,000 books, scriptures, cylinder scrolls, ancient texts, tablets, all over the world, papyruses and everything else. It's all in here. I didn't squander my time. My mother. My mother always told me, whatever you want to learn is in a book. Whatever you want to learn is in a book. This is long before the internet came out, you know, so. Long before the internet came out. We're talking about the 1970s. My mother told me, whatever you want to learn is in a book. Yeah, people don't read anymore. And I took that to heart. And I've gone through, I've gobbled up thousands of books. Gobbled them right up. 
for the average person is only touching on a couple of pages here or there or reading a couple of scriptures here or there. If you're a person that's relying on a biblical text or biblical book, the Bible, for example, and the information in there to secure your place in eternity, you want to secure your place in eternity with this biblical information. And yet you couldn't answer probably 10 questions that I would ask. You have to begin to ask yourself, how in the hell does this guy know more about the Bible than me? And I'm hoping for a place in eternity based on this information. It's a problem. You have to look in the mirror and realize you haven't done any work. You haven't asked any questions. You haven't sought out the answer to any questions if you did ask them. You're just going with the flow. That's a big problem. That's the nature of our reality in the society we live on this planet today. Everyone just going with the flow, doing no research, no, dig, no digging, no investigation. Even these trolls out here that come up with these videos, their research capability is so poor that the information they put out becomes defamation because they, don't, they themselves don't know what they're doing. And they think they did a great job researching. They need to be taught a class on how to research. They know nothing. They're living in a world of people that do poor research. You want to get to this mythical, magical place called heaven based off of one book. And in your brain, that one book has everything in it you need. It's all accurate. Don't even question it. If you question it, you're going to go to hell. That's what they tell you. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not accurate. Take the fear. False evidence appearing real. That's what fear is. False evidence appearing real. Take that fear and kick it to the side. And start doing some digging and start asking some serious questions. Because anytime I can sit down with a religious person, including pastors, and ask them questions that they can't answer, what they start saying is, don't question God, because they don't have the answer. You can't question the scripture. They don't have that means that means that means I don't have the answer. And getting still, you want to get to this paradise for all eternity, and you don't know anything. I even this one Christian guy I met one day, he was talking to me. I said, well, what's Jesus' brother's name? You know, you told me you love Jesus. He said, I started off like this. I said, you told me you love Jesus. I love Jesus with all my heart. That's all I focus on. I said, really? I said, how many years? The guy says, over 20 years he'd been a Christian. I said, well, what's Jesus' brother's name? He didn't know the answer. <laughs> I love my fiance. I can get, if you ask me what her brother's name is, I'm going to tell you his name. I know his name. How are you going to love somebody so much that you are lying on this entity for eternity and you don't know the name of this guy's brother? I'd be asking simple questions, too. I don't be asking no hard questions. I ask simple questions. They just have no clue. I told this one guy, give me, I said, how many years have you been reading the Bible? This guy said it's almost, almost like 50 years. He's an older guy. I said, give me a two-paragraph summary of the book of Deuteronomy. Go. Book of Deuteronomy? Yeah, give me a two-paragraph summary. What's going on in the book of Deuteronomy? What's happening in there? Tell me. Just give me a something. Give me something. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Can't do it. No clue. Can't do it. There's a problem with that. There's a big problem with that. When I start asking basic questions that you can't answer... This other guy, when was the rapture added to the Bible? Rapture added to the Bible? Oh, no, that's part of the, that's the canonized text. No, that ain't no canonized text. Who wrote 
the scripture. It was actually a footnote. What year was it written? And why was it added to the Bible? Can't answer. William James Darby, 1835, added a footnote to a biblical text on a theory he had about a rapture event. Didn't really exist. Later on, some pastors saw it as a way to great a great way to control people and added it as the canonized text and reprinted it as published you know, text in the Bible. As if it was a real verse. Doesn't exist. See? Doesn't exist. <laughs> but you can ask these questions. They have no clue about these questions. They have no clue about the answer to these questions because they don't do any research. The pastor jumps up and he screams and he screams and he sweats all over the place and his sweat splashing on you and he's knocking you out with these with these invisible power blows and everything else. And you're getting you all hype and they're playing the music at the right frequency that gets everybody shaking. A good rock and roll song will make you do the same thing. I see Michael Jackson on stage have people in the audience shaking, vibrating, and talking in tongues and passing out. Just like a pastor can do. It's all about the right frequency and vibration. You can psych anybody out. You can psych yourself out into believing in all this stuff. At the end of the day, what knowledge do you really have and can you apply that knowledge? Why can I go to my old neighborhood in Opelika in Miami, Florida, and there's about, and within only maybe a five-mile radius, there's about 60 churches. <laughs> there's literally a church on every corner, sometimes two on a corner. And the city is worse than when I left it. How come I can go around this entire country and every time I go to an impoverished area, there's a million churches there sucking up the money, the little bit of money that people have in the community, and the community is going down the tubes? How come I can do that? Because it's being used as a manipulation tactic, because the people there, they are wanting some kind of change, some miraculous event to happen so badly they're willing to block any sense of logic whatsoever, toss it out of the window, and give their last dime, their, their rent money, due to that prosperity. You know the prosperity message. They always come with the prosperity message. You got to give till it hurts. You got to give till it hurts. Give up that money. If you put something in the plate and it ain't the right amount, and you know you got more money to give, and blah, 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 blah. And if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're never going to see a return. So you give up everything you got. They press that plate around 10 times. You put everything you got in that plate. Now you can't, Monday comes, you can't pay your rent. You can't pay your light bill. You can't pay your car note. And the pastor running around the back staircase with this big, huge wad of money. You're going to take care of all his bills are paid. Then you come back and say, hey, uh, I need, I got, a, my, I'm, I'm about to get evicted. Can you pay this off for me right quick? I've been coming here for 20 years. He ain't going to pay that off. Hey, pastor, you know what? I got a great business idea. Here's my business plan. I want the church to fund it for me because I've been coming here for 20 years and all my kids now are growing up. They've been coming here and everybody's been tired and nonstop. And we only need about $15,000 to start this company. And we need you guys to go ahead and, uh, you know, make that seed investment for us. <laughs> Ain't happening. <laughs> Hey, matter of fact, you might get excommunicated from the church for even asking that question. <laughs> Look, man, we got to wake up. <laughs> we got to wake up. We've been pimped. 
the best thing you can do is admit you've been pimped. It's going to hurt you for a, a good, about a good two months, maybe three months. All right? So you got to start asking the right question. You got to start looking at what you're believing in because anytime you say, I'm, I'm relying on this information for my eternal life, but you don't even know the verses I just spoke on tonight in my book. You didn't even know some of those verses existed. If you're relying, somebody tells me, if you want to make it to eternity, what's in this book, whatever this book is, what's in this book is what you got to know. Man, I'm going to, not only am I going to study that book backwards or forward, forward or frontwards, I'm going to probably eat the pages. And still, what you see is people are told this, and this is why it doesn't happen, and I'm end with this. The reason why people who are mostly Christians, unfortunately, Sit back, kick their feet up, and watch the world burn. It's because they're told. Battery low. Just beg this outside deity, named Jesus, for forgiveness, and that all their sins will be absolved, erased. Right. So they, in their mind, and I messed up again. Oh, it's okay. I can just say forgive me, and I can keep on going. Now I don't have to answer. For, I don't have to be responsible for my own wrongdoings. I don't have to take responsibility for my life. I can do whatever I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. And I can just beg for forgiveness and get a fresh start again. The ancient Egyptians understood that they could use sound to reduce their weight and the gravitational effect through arc. How I want to do it, when I want to do it. And I can just beg for forgiveness and get a fresh start again. I don't have to take responsibility for what I'm doing and how I'm acting and what I'm being. I can just blame that on the devil. The devil made me do it. He whispered in my ear. There's a devil out there that can whisper in the ears of millions and billions of people and make you do things. And that devil that's in your ear is your own self talking to yourself, making you do dumb stuff that you did. That you yourself did. No, nobody else influenced you. You did it. You're the one that did that. And then you absolve yourself by begging forgiveness to this other entity. Now you just keep going in this cycle of doing dumb stuff and begging for forgiveness and doing dumb stuff and begging for forgiveness. And if I do it just the right time, right before I die, if I could time it right before my last heartbeat, I might make it into heaven. That's what y'all are doing. It's all about fear-based. It's all about self-survival, self-preservation. It has nothing to do with love whatsoever. Zero to do with love. Zero. It's all about how can I save my own skin? So I don't burn in this fake lake of fire that they told me about all eternity. That's what it's all about. So at some point, you got to start asking yourself deeper, harder questions about life, about this religious belief system that you've been forced, that's been forced on you, that's been fed and shoved down your throat your whole life. And you've been told, don't ask questions, don't question this, don't question that. So there's one pastor who was this female pastor. She was on uh, TV, jumping around, screaming, sweating all over everybody, talking about some, thank goodness for slavery. Otherwise, we'd still be in Africa praying to a tree. What? Oh my God. Thank goodness for slavery. This lady doesn't even know anything about African spirituality. She probably couldn't tell you the first thing about African spirituality or even her own bloodline and where they came from or even what part of Africa they were even from. Or if they were even from Africa, they might have been from America before America was America. And she jumping around here talking about some, 
thank God for slavery. Like millions of people had to be slaughtered and died and whipped and beat so that she can find this ability to absolve her sins from an outside entity so she can don't have to take responsibility for her own actions. <laughs> See, the, there's no logic in that. There's zero logic in it. Zero. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible says, Jesus says this. He says, honor your slave master as you would honor me. Honor your slave master as you would honor me. Jesus is condoning slavery in the New Testament. You see, that's garbage. So you could tell that's a remix. Somebody said, you know what? Let me add this little piece in here because I got to keep these slaves on a check. Let me add this in here. We're going to print this. Because, you know, back in the time of the Torah, yeah, they had, they like to have them house slaves. But they had them. It was, it's, it's all in the Bible. Lots of slaves back then. Lots of slaves. Let's make this slavery okay. Then you get into the New Testament. All of a sudden, like, you know what? We got to keep these slaves going. I don't care about this New Testament. We got to keep the slaves. Uh, honor your, Jesus says, honor your slave master as you would honor me. Do you think the creator of the universe is going to tell you to honor a slave master? Come on now. If you believe that, I don't know. I don't want to say nothing crazy, but you might, go, you might have to go get an IQ test. You might have to go get an IQ test. And then from there, you might have to go sit down and see you know, what you can do to what kind of supplements you could take, what kind of vitamins you could take to help boost your brain, brain power. If you believe that, you got to do something. You got to do something. If you believe that the creator of the universe is okaying and you can honor your slave master, come on now. Ginkgo biloba, blueberries, uh, you know, um, you might need some some grapeseed extract, uh, anti, you know, something. Get the brain pumping, please. Please do something. Because if you believe that, you really, 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 really need some something. I, I can't tell you what it is, but you, you got to go find out what it is. Because that's low IQ, low frequency. In the New Testament, the Bible tells you, again, Jesus speaking, the slave master, about beating the slave. And he's telling the slave master, don't beat him too bad. You don't want to kill him. Just beat him to within like an inch of his life. Because, you know, we need him to keep continue to do the work. But you don't want to kill him. We're going to punish you if you kill the slave. You can beat him, but don't kill him. How come they're not teaching that in Bible study every single Sunday or Wednesday night, whenever they go? How come they're not doing that? Didn't know about that either, did you? You see? Foolishness. Foolishness. So, again, become your own person. Become your own researcher. Start asking questions. Ask yourself questions. Look at information that contradicts itself and start trying to figure out why is it contradicting. And then use some basic logic and you'll figure out what's being told to you is not exactly what happened. What's being taught to you to believe in wholeheartedly for eternity is not even coming from the word of the creator of the universe itself. It's coming from human beings, from men. Actual flesh and blood men that put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you. All you need to know is this, and I'm gonna end. The divine spark that created everything in the entire universe is inside of every atom in your body. 
Meaning that you are God and God is you. You are the divine walking in the flesh already to experience life like it is in the third dimension as you. And everything that exists in the entire third dimension that's made of atoms, and we know that everything in the third dimension is made of what? Atoms. Is conscious. This microphone is conscious. This cell phone is conscious. The book is conscious. Why? Because it's made of atoms. And we know in quantum physics that atoms are conscious because electrons are conscious and electrons orbit the nucleus of the atom. So everything's alive. We don't make a cell phone. We don't make a microphone. We stack atoms like Legos and then we can convert it into a, an object that we can utilize for our own personal benefit. However, the atoms themselves that are in this, that are stacked up, are conscious, period. And if you understand that everything is conscious and you taught that to your kids, their clothes are conscious. You teach them what it means to be conscious and you teach them to respect everything that's conscious, well, then they will treat everything better. You will treat everything better. You, you will treat everything you have and own with respect and dignity. You will take care of things better. You will be more grateful for things because you would realize that everything you're touching, everything you're dealing with, including the chair I'm, the chair I'm sitting on, is conscious. A rock is conscious. That's the power of knowing spirituality and knowledge and wisdom. Not believing in these fake gods in this book that are leading you to your own demise. Got you sitting back thinking you didn't made it because you can say, hey, forgive me. You're still doing the dirt. You've been absolved, but you're not taking any responsibility for your own actions, for your own life. You just keep doing it over and over again like a broken record. How about breaking out of that mold and changing the cycle, changing the system, changing the paradigm and realizing who you are and what you are and walking in that power? That's when your life is going to change. And that's when your family life is going to change as well. All right, guys, thanks for joining right. me tonight. I appreciate you guys. Right. I love you. Thanks for being a part of Forbidden Knowledge. Sure. I'm going to close out with this amazing opportunity for you to get a Mercedes Benz from this raffle. I'm going to drop the raffle link in the chat. This raffle hey is there a way i can apply to be your assistant through gaia gaia through Gaia. The incredible I am Oxford, comma, Berkeley, comma.
comma filmmaker at the medical union musician Painter, some of the proceeds go to help communities and schools, which are children that are desperately in need. All right, so if you want to get a chance to win this Mercedes Benz AMG, click the link in the comments, and I'll see you guys. out exclamation point Go to his channel. The Epic of Humanity and Forbidden Knowledge for a New Age. Da Vinci Code Redux, the Astonishing Alpha Omega. Okay, this sounds good. Hey, this is what I do almost every weekend, shopping real estate. You probably Right. This is what I do almost every weekend, shopping real estate. You're probably not going to start with that deal right there or the one that I'm... Globe. So let's get talking about the Great Pyramid. And, you know, I've been... Uh, it's been kind of bizarre. You know, I went to the Great Pyramid in 2017 with the Residence uh, Foundation, and I gave my first presentation there on uh, my view of mathematics as a universal language of consciousness. And um, I fell in love with that place. Like, <laughs> I've been back several times, and it has absolutely changed my life. I, first of all, I'd never presented to a large group before. So that was my first time to present any of my math work. I mean, obviously I've been working in business for many, many years and in the business context, I give presentations all the time, but I had never kind of presented anything on my math work. And I was shocked that at the end of a, you know, several hour presentation, I thought everyone would be bored to tears. And actually half the room was absolutely in tears, but not because they were bored, thankfully. Um, I think what I have kind of figured out, and, and I agree with Billy, we, we don't really discover anything. We just remember things. And as we remember things and we tap into our higher awareness, um, we can 
access this Akashic field. We can access a higher field of knowledge. And, and I think the Great Pyramid plays a very fundamental role in this. And I see the Great Pyramid as a device, uh, not only for a stargate for travel, which I've experienced myself, and I've not shared this with anybody before in any kind of public forum, so this is the first time I'm going to be talking about this. But in addition, I really see it as a tool for ascension for humanity. And I see it as a mirror of our own consciousness, that as we are able to tap into higher dimensions, we will tap in and be able to find new chambers, new things related to the Great Pyramid. And I've already experienced that several times myself. So let's get into this. So this is kind of what a trip with me is like. Okay, This is not the normal trek into, uh, into a structure. You know, this is kind of like, <laughs> almost more like the Indiana Jones version of these things. And, you know, it's been, it's been a great pleasure to be able to, to access places that other people just have never accessed before. Uh, open archaeological dig sites, etc. cetera. Um, and, you know, obviously everyone has to be very careful not to do anything disrespectful in any way, you know, to, to the structures as they're kind of uh, being opened up. And the great thing about the places that you go into, and I have to say, I want to compliment the Egyptian government. A lot has been said about how, you know, in Egypt, uh, there's, there's sort of this big uh, sort of context of suppression around keeping things out of the public eye. Well, actually, my, my experience has been quite the opposite. Um, I've been able to, to foster a really good relationship with the Dr. Howass. Positions in, in Egypt and I enjoy that, and as such, I'm able to get access to things that probably other people have never gotten access to. And, you know, it was exactly three years ago this week that I discovered the Alpha Omega inside the Great Pyramid. It was kind of bizarre because the entire week before, I was in Israel with a group of uh, my friends, and I was drawing all week in my notebook an Alpha Omega. I kept drawing Alpha Omega, Alpha Omega. And then... On the airplane, even over, I was drawing sort of the geometric form of Alpha Omega. And you can see some of that in this picture on the right. And I had this feeling that there was going to be something fundamental about Alpha Omega. And when I got to the Great Pyramid, of course, knowing that there's never been any writing found, um, you know, either in the, the King's Chamber or sort of purposely and, and very famously devoid of writing, I looked down and it was the most bizarre thing because... I have to say, right before I noticed the Alpha Omega, I remembered it. And again, I've not said this to anybody, so you guys are the first to hear this. I remembered the Alpha Omega being pressed into the rose granite uh, when it was created, when it was done, and I was there. And so the moment that I remembered it, I looked down right at the spot that I had remembered it in, and there it was, in the exact same spot. And it was very difficult to just see it unless you kind of had it pointed out to you. So I can see why nobody saw it before. I can see, I mean, you can see it, that the Omega is quite difficult to see, but the Alpha is quite clear. And it's just uh, it's just something that unless you look at it in a perfect light, you, you can easily miss it. And obviously it's very, very old. It has a very old patina on it. Now, Alpha Omega, you might say, well, those are Greek letters. I don't believe that they have their origin in Greece. I believe that they have their origin far, far, far before Greece. And that they are holdovers and carryovers from a very ancient language that 
we might refer to today as some form of Atlantean. So this is the king's chamber and the sarcophagus. So the sarcophagus is 89.62 inches uh, in length, and it's 38 and a half inches wide. And just as Billy said, it will fit exactly inside of the sarcophagus, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant famously has, you know, the thick signs of the, uh, of the zodiac faces on each of the angels, right, that are on, on the cherubim that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and a lot of reason why people get this confused and think that the Ark of the Covenant would never fit inside the king's chamber sarcophagus is because you have to make the conversion to the biblical cubit, which is not the same length. Introducing the Beautyrest Black Mattress, designed with advanced support technology for body and mind. The same length uh, as the, uh, as the uh, Royal Egyptian cubit. The Royal Egyptian cubit, in this case, is 1.718 feet. Whereas the uh, the biblical cubit is more like around, and there are ranges of it as well, but it's more like in the range of about a foot and a half. So this is a, a video that was made by Will Wire, who went to visit the King's Chamber after I had already posted on it and, and identified the Alpha Omega markings, and he wanted to see them for himself. So this was his experience. See it right there. Just as if you were there. And you have to ask yourself, how could this have been missed? many, many, many years. And who knows exactly how many years. So this is the Alpha Omega. And you can see on top, you know, kind of without the framing, and, and this will help you see it. You can see with the framing, and interestingly, the exact dimensions and proportions of the Alpha Omega are quite fascinating in and of themselves. So from the uh, far side of the sarcophagus, or the one that's nearest to the Alpha Omega, that would be, as we're looking at it now, looking down at it, to the right, from the seraph of the A, which is right kind of at that, close to the center of the Alpha Omega, it's exactly 31.4159 inches. And to the peak of the letter A, it is uh, exactly 33 inches. So 33 and 31.4159 inches, those obviously are, are very, very important numbers, both of which we've already talked about on this program. Uh, it has a slope as well of the letter A of 56 degrees. And why is that important? And why is the 5.6 inches important? Well, because that's a reference as well to 31.4159, which would be pi times 10, because 5.605 inches squared, uh, so it would be 5.605 inches squared, turns out to be 31.4159 inches as well. 
And it also ties back to the room itself, because the room itself is exactly measured in meters. 31.4159 meters is the perimeter of the king's chamber itself. So here we have the exact dimensions, and not only these dimensions, but many, many others, which you're about to see, that are tying right back to the construction of the pyramid itself. So, you know, what is the sarcophagus made out of? The pyramid sarcophagus is made out of rose granite, and it's a very special room because the speed of sound through air is 343 meters per second, but the speed of sound inside granite, so through granite, because sound seeks a, a dense medium for its wave propagation, is actually 6,000 meters per second. So it's a full 17 and a half times faster than the speed of sound through air. Now, interestingly, the, the symbol, of course, and if you look at kind of the, the gemstones for the month of May and, and late April of Taurus is actually the emerald, right? The green stone. And I, I'm Taurus. It's my birthday next week. So you know, this is always kind of a, a special time for me. But the rose quartz is another very important aspect of this. Um, and it also ties back to the name of the Giza Plateau, which the Giza Plateau was originally called the Ross Tau, right? The Rose Cross. Now, if you go on to Amoric, which is the Rosicrucian website, uh, they claim as one of their original members of, uh, and leaders was actually Leonardo da Vinci. So the granite out of which this chamber is constructed is igneous, is an igneous rock containing silicone quartz crystals. This particular granite, which was brought from Aswan quarries, contains 55% or more quartz crystal. So this is really a crystal chamber. So now if we get deeper into the dimensions of this Alpha Omega, we're going to find some other numbers that are quite startling. So first of all, if you notice that we have 3.24 inches is exactly the width of the Alpha. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Robert, didn't they use the cubit? Well, just as we've heard, and as you're going to see in this presentation, the cubit, the meter, and the foot were all fundamental units of measure used to create and construct the Great Pyramid. With the Fries app, you can always save big on your favorites with personalized coupons and deals, so you can spend less and get more. Download the Fries app today and get savings designed with you in mind. Fries, fresh for everyone. Units of measure used to create and construct the Great Pyramid. So then you might ask, well, how is that possible? Because you know, how could it be if we didn't have the foot? And wasn't the foot just like some guy's foot for a king's foot? And isn't that sort of an arbitrary unit of measure? And what I'm telling you right now is no, it is not an arbitrary unit of measure. And I can tell you very definitively so. But I'm going to leave it in this presentation you'll see in just a moment. You'll see that the peak of the A is on the 33rd inch. And 31.4 inches is right at the edge of the seraph. And then 30 inches right, at the center of the omega, which, of course, is 0.33 of the length of the sarcophagus. So you have this interesting symmetry, and 33 inches 
at the peak of the alpha, but it's 0.33 of the length of the sarcophagus at the center and peak of the omega. And we have many math mathematical constants that are embedded in this. In fact, we've now found that over 12 of the fundamental mathematical constants are embedded just in these two letters. So if this somehow was graffiti, whoever put it there was way more advanced in their knowledge. And at least they would have been at least advanced at the degree that the builders of the Great Pyramid were because the same proportional dimensions are built into it. You can see phi, 1.62 inches for the width of the omega. And actually, if you look at the two legs coming off of the omega symbol, those two legs happen to center exactly at 222.5 degrees and 137.5 degrees. And why is that important? Well, because 137.5 is the golden angle and 222.5 is uh, phi or 0.618 multiplied by 360 degrees. We also have Euler sitting inside here because you'll notice as well that, uh, that you know, the, the, the length, right, at the 33rd inch, right, is 0.37, right, 0.37. And we multiply that by 3.7 and you end up with 1.37, right, again. So 0.37 multiplied by 3.7 equals 1.37. Well, that's the fine structure constant as well, right? And then if we take uh, 33 inches at the peak of the uh, letter A, and we divide that by 89.62 inches, we have the Euler number. So wait a minute, we've got the Euler number, and then when you take 89.62 inches and divide it by pi, it comes out to the speed of light plus one in miles per second. I mean, this is kind of crazy. And the last uh, video we had, you know, when, when Billy was teaching us about Euler-Mascheroni constant, the Euler-Mascheroni constant is a little bit different from the Euler number. Euler-Mascheroni constant comes out to be 0.5772156. And that 0.5772 shows up again in Euler plus 1. So 1.5772 is giving us uh, this relationship of 89.62 inches versus 56.62 inches, which is the 33 inches removed, right? So the leftover part or the dark part of the sarcophagus comes out to be exactly the Euler-Mascheroni number that's the, denoted by the letter uh, Y that you can see, plus one. That's kind of amazing. And 5.6 inches turns out when divided into 89.62, turns out to be 0 0.062, again, a golden ratio. So it, it just seems highly, highly uncanny that this would all just be coincidence. So, but the, the real Da Vinci Code began for me with this drawing because I was, uh, it was, it was, you know, my wife was, was pregnant and it was the day that she was going to be due. And so I was waiting and she was sleeping. And so I started sketching in my notebook while she was sleeping and kind of going through her early stages of her labor. And she had a very long labor. And, uh, and I started sketching this drawing. And somehow, and I, I sketched it without having any picture in front of me or anything. I just kind of did it from memory. And somehow, I immediately felt like the upper right corner, and it looks askew here. That's just because I didn't do it with a scanner. I took this picture um, when I drew the picture, which was with my camera on my iPhone. In the upper right-hand corner, I noticed that 
if I drew a line directly from the center of the navel, right, and then marked where that showed up, and if, if zero degrees was at the top of the circle, like on a, a clock, right, then that would end up being 51.843 degrees. And I just, I just knew it. It was, it was the weirdest thing. And then I also knew I started drawing circles up his body, which I realized immediately was marking chakras. And I recognized as well the locations of each of those chakra points were matching up with exactly where the chambers were showing up. showing up so this was one of those moments where you know i should not have been thinking about anything else other than i was going to have another baby but my wife was going to have a baby but i, I immediately started uh, thinking about okay i got to get in touch with alan green and we've got to start investigating this further for sure and sure enough we did right and we 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 found that in fact there is a direct correlation each of these horizontal lines had a, uh, you know, is matching up exactly with the floor level of each of the chambers, including the ground level. Then what about the lines here at the knees? And what about the lines here uh, that's markedly higher than the, than the old entrance and as well the current entrance? What are these lines telling us? Right? And, and wait a minute, how is it even possible that Da Vinci knew any of this stuff? course, you have to ask the question, what about this line here at the throat? What about the one at the eyebrow? And what about the one at the crown? So we actually went on a trip so that we could chase down this mystery. And we knew already that there had been this pyramid scan project that they had found a very large void space above the Grand Gallery that is about the same size as the Grand Gallery and would potentially lead exactly to the throat chakra level of the Great Pyramid. Now, it just so happens that the first trip I had to Egypt, uh, while we were there, they, is the day that they found, we saw when we were there in October, on October 5th and 6th of uh, 2017. So here we were, about almost 200 of us, here having this incredible experience inside the Great Pyramid. And, um, well, you know, and then all the way around the other side of the earth, we had a, a horrific, you know, horrific experience happening in Las Vegas. And, and so at the same time, though, we had heard that they had found some discovery using this muonic, uh, you know, scanning and ground penetrating radar type of technology. They found a very large void space above the Grand Gallery. And uh, so I had to go back, right? I had to go back. And in 2018, I went and I discovered the Alpha Omega. And then I went back again in, uh, in, in early 2020, just before COVID hit in a major way. And in fact, we barely made it back in time before they closed the borders. I think we had almost only one day to spare. Uh, otherwise, we'd have been stuck in Egypt for quite some time. So 
Then we had the question, though, before going to Egypt in 2020, well, we need some evidence that da Vinci actually went to Egypt. And what we found is a reference in this book that I have, the Codice Atlantico. And the Codice Atlantico is a collection of the, the writings and notebook uh, works of Leonardo da Vinci across science and art and, and mathematics, across virtually everything. And there are several codexes that, uh, that Da Vinci kept, uh, in fact, that have become books today. Uh, Codex Leicester, right, is one of them, and it happens to be owned by, by Bill Gates uh, right now. But as you look in those letters, there's actually a letter to the Devadar of Syria, and who is the Sultan of Cairo. Now, that's kind of interesting. The Sultan of Babylon, Cairo, but it's specifically says that it's not a reference to the Babylon on the shores of the river Chobur. Right. And even today, Leonardo's you know, work is perhaps the most famous historical photographer that ever existed, right? He, he encrypted 